From Warner Brothers, who crashed the action barrier with Enter the Dragon, comes a new dimension in Black Belt Thrills. As Hammer, masters of horror, and the Shaw Brothers, masters of kung fu, join forces to create the first martial arts horror spectacular ever filmed. The whispered word is vampire. The horror is real and very close. What you must understand is that they are already dead. I'll fall before them, and you too will be eternally damned. The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I am sitting here with my co-hosts, Sally Chapel and Paul Farrell. Gang, how are you? How have you been? What's going on? What have you been up to? Why aren't you speaking? Because you yeah, always say like, both of your names at once, and we never know who. Yeah. you're kind of like we're in the middle of a thing. I was waiting for you to get to the end of the thing you were doing. Paul, you have podcasted with me enough to know that I'm just going to keep talking until one of yeah. you step in. It's kind of funnier to just let you go. Yeah, just, just kind of see what happens. It's, it's, <laughs> see where that adventure it's like goes. a roulette. <laughs> like I will eventually just. Roulette. I will power down. That's a fact. It'll it'll happen slowly and it'll be kind of sad. Um, no, no, I uh, I it has been a while since we recorded. I've missed you all. I uh, can't wait to dive into the movie that we're going to tonight because it's been something that I think all of us have been anticipating for a while. This is one of the uh, I think one of the shining stars of Hammer's catalog, whether or not it's widely considered to be as such or not. To me personally, I, I adore the one we're about to talk about. But uh, before we get to that, uh, guess what? What? I think, we I, have a I, guest. think I, know. What? I think I know. We have a guest, Allie. We have a guest. What? I was we not informed. You were you just literally oh, this is a bit. Okay, I right, Allie. Yes, you were not informed. <clears throat> it's all like, a bit. Nudge, nudge. It's all one big bit. Come on. <laughs> now I could actually do the introduction if you all would care, but I think it would be better if one of our co-hosts who might know our guest a bit better than me, go ahead and do that introduction. So, Paul, you want to yes. take from here? Uh, sure. Uh, so, yeah, our guest tonight is uh, one of my favorite uh, people, uh, someone who is uh, very active in the world of, of podcasting, uh, the creator and uh, host of the Dead Ringers podcast, which I am incredibly lucky to be a part of. Um, he also uh, does writing online. He's been uh, on Daily Dead before, uh, and he has published stuff on on the Dead Ringers website as well. Uh, it is Nolan McBride, who we're very glad to welcome to the show. Woo! Hello, hello. It's a long time coming, Nolan. We've been yeah. we've been wanting to have you on since the very beginning of Hammer Pub. Yeah, we we picked out the episode. Uh, me not realizing that chronologically, it's like one of the last <laughs> Hammer movies. So then it was just like, oh, okay, I guess we'll revisit this in a couple months. <laughs> And, yes. uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, right at the start, but I am excited that you finally came onto this episode wherein we'll uh, be discussing Captain Kronos. Um, <laughs> been, a, been a long time. No, okay. I, for whatever reason, I had always confused these two, but are they really all that different? They're both action horror movies with Western elements, you know, but uh, 
Nobody, nobody's going to back me up on this. I, I like to think they're. I I see them as being totally like in continuity with one another. Yeah. Like I could see Captain Kronos like hanging out in this world. He should have. Nope. He should have. Damn it. So, Nolan, I got to ask: out of any Hammer movie you might have chosen, any at all, why go with this one? Uh, well, it's uh, this year has been a year of discovery when it comes to martial arts movies. So, like, I hadn't really seen, I don't think, any Shaw Brothers movies prior to this year. I just always assumed they weren't my kind of thing. Um, and so I've watched a ton of those this year and love them. So as soon as I realized there was a Shaw Brothers Hammer co-production, I was like, well, that's got to be the one that I want to do. <laughs> so it was uh, it was a perfect fit for my like, the sort of overall theme of my year. I, so do I have you to thank for that big Shaw Brothers Blu-ray box set that's coming out at the end of the year? You, you've gone through, I'm sure you've hunted down like previous Shaw Brothers mo- movies this year. And I find that whenever I do that, inevitably, you know, when I spend too much money on like a 20-year-old DVD that's been long out of print, as soon as I do that, <laughs> like a big box set is announced right after. So so I just yes. want to thank you for your sacrifice because clearly you made that happen. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I cheated the system, though, by, like, jumping the line because I'm sure there's people who have been waiting years and years for, like, a quality Shaw Brothers set. And I just got on it this year and I'm like, I wish I had those. And then now here they are. I mean, yeah, I I hadn't picked up a ton of them because a lot of them are really hard to find on uh, Blu-ray if they even have, like, a good Blu-ray. But um, I just got two recently and one of them i realized is one that's in the box set and i was like well i've already i've already got the duplicate so i'm well on my way <laughs> nice i you know it's funny i i think i'm right about this i tried looking up a copy of uh, the five deadly venoms recently and i saw the price that's tag the on one it. I like i if you want what? a copy i will send you my copy i i just picked that up on blu-ray and it, it's in the set and i just did not realize it was in the set so i now have a copy of it i will not use Nice. Yeah, I a buddy of mine loaned it to me on like a badly beat up VHS in 99 or 2000, not long after The Matrix had come out. And he was like, hey, do you know all of that cool wire foo stuff that you like in The Matrix? Why don't you pop this in and check it out? Mm-hmm. And uh, that movie is so much fun. I love it. But uh, Nolan, since you're here, I got to tell you, you know, we, we started this podcast as Getting Hammered with Hammer. Now it's Hammer Pub. We're hoping to move on to maybe uh, Tygen Tavern, Amicus Anonymous. But uh you know, given we're about to chat Seven Golden Vampires, and given that we do have that big box set of Kung Fu movies coming out at the end of the year, I don't know. You know, Paul, Ali, what do you think about getting sloshed with Shaw? You know, maybe? Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That would be incredible because I feel like you could make an easy drinking game out of those movies. <laughs> they, they they do, like, lean heavy into tropes in a, in a delightful way. Um, and I think, like, as we'll talk about, like the fusion of Hammer and Shaw is actually kind of perfect because they have a lot of shared sensibilities um, in the sort of like economical way that they they produce their movies. Absolutely. Well, hey, I cannot wait to dive into this movie, but as we always do, let's go ahead and take one trip around the table and talk about stuff that we've seen recently. Nolan, you are our guest what recent horror movies or even something remotely genre based, or if you're going to lean Paul's route, what movie or TV <laughs> show that might not be even remotely horror have you seen recently that you would like to recommend to people? 
I feel like Paul always takes the rap for that on the show, but I feel no, like as, kids aren't always that off horror. Uh, I, no, no, no. I, I, I do want to say one thing. It, that sounds like a knock, but I actually envy that Paul gets to have that uh, that usual position because uh, I'm I'm always keen to talk about non-horror stuff because I always feel like I'm talking about nothing but horror. So, uh, no, I like to, you know, if Paul does it, I feel like I can do it. And then uh, then Allie can do it. And then we get to talk about things like Pig Alley. Remember that long conversation you and I had about Nicolas Cage and Pig, and then we recommended it? We recommended it to Paul together. Did you just completely forget that, as you noted in a DM? Heartbreaking. Very one. aggressive Allie? towards Allie tonight. It's okay. It's been a, it's been a trip. <laughs> Pent up anger, maybe. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're revealing some of the Hammer Pub DMs to the yeah. world. Here. <laughs> I'm just saying, I thought it was a wonderful conversation that Allie and I had about this movie, and she forgot about it entirely. But not that I'm bitter. <clears throat> it's not that I forgot. It's just it's not important to me. <laughs> Accurate. <sighs> no one, please take the mic. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on because I did not get a chance to say that, but I really appreciate it. And it, I feel like it's been a long time coming because we've had you on one episode of Dead Ringers and then tried to, and that was the one episode of Dead Ringers I wasn't on. And then, or I guess we've had a couple solo interview episodes with Emily. Um, and then we tried to have you on a couple episodes of Dead Ringers and then like the week before something has just not worked out. So I, yeah, I just I, realized, I think this is the first time we've actually... <laughs> podcast together yes yeah you know i and i should uh i should go ahead and take this moment to publicly apologize because for all the times that you and i were going to podcast together and it didn't happen it's always been my fault like it's always like the one time that i was going to be on dead ringers i couldn't wait to do it and then like i got hit with a bunch of stuff and i was like son of a bitch like i'm gonna miss the the frankenstein talk which wound up being a great episode and one that i wish i'd been there for so i could more vehemently defend uh horror frankenstein which is a great movie um (laughs) But no, I really, I really wanted to do that. And then last week, I'll go ahead and clue listeners in as, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of like shuffling back and forth between this weekly and bi-weekly schedule as we make our way to the end of our, uh, our hammer run. But uh, last week, we were going to record Seven Golden Vampires. And literally at the last moment, I, I did one of those weird, like, I hadn't done it since college, but I had to weigh everything that I had to do in the span of like 48 hours. I'm like, okay, uh, so if I get this amount of homework done by this point, and then I take, I, I allow myself this much to study for finals and then this much for, Oh shit, I have no time to sleep. Uh, I kind of <laughs> had to do that last week. And I realized I was like, I am running about like three hours shy. So I, I had to put it off last week too. I apologize. And thank you very much for actually being gracious enough to, to wait a week and come on. Oh yeah, no problem. No problem. We've, we, I think just had to cancel episode recently because multiple people were not either had something come up the day of, or we're not feeling good. So like, you know, you always have to shuffle sometimes. Heard that. But um, yeah, as far as recent stuff, um, one I will mention you you talked about Nicolas Cage. I just watched uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland, <laughs> um, which I had heard. So I'd ne- I've never seen any of um, Cyan Sono's films, uh, though I know he has a reputation for being pretty like mean and nasty and weird and out there. I know that this one was already kind of mentioned as a, a little bit tamer. And for reasons of like us, we had a big group over to watch it. So like, I didn't want it to be something like extreme and horrifying that like was going to, you know, traumatize the group. So that worked out great. Um, 
but what it is is basically uh to credit thomas from uh, dead ringers he mentioned like it's it's a real dead ringer for um escape from new york except instead of being sent to like some you know demilitarized zone or whatever like it's uh you're sent into the ghost land quite literally so like nicholas cage goes into like this spirit world um and has to go like rescue sofia botella and it's just a lot of weird shit (laughs) um but it's also very entertaining like i think there's a couple i think um there's spots in the middle where it sags a little bit but there's enough interesting like i think the visuals are really really good and really interesting so it's at least always pretty to look at um and when Nicolas Cage gets to do a little more, it's great. Um, but I think it's just like, it feels a little meandering at parts or like there's a, a lot of ideas that are like sort of percolating, but not necessarily coming together. Um, but I do think there was enough interesting things that I would really sort of uh, had a lot of fun with it. Nonetheless, um, it's it's just bizarre. Like, there, like there's a, a weird... It's almost a little silent hilly too, because the the ta- like he wanders off into this town that's been impacted by something. I won't like spoil. It's not like a big deal, but um, and so everyone there is kind of trapped in this state where they worship weird things, and uh, they all worship this giant clock, and it feels a little bit like Hook, um, and uh, they're always yelling about like time, and they're literally holding time back, like they've got a rope and they're holding the clock back and it's just (laughs) there's a lot of like weird shit that like doesn't feel like it's fully fleshed out but like it's there um and you know the the big draw for people who don't know is that nicholas cage is sitting to do this and part of the deal is uh well one he's sitting by bill mosley who's who's camping camping it up wonderfully um and he's sent in a suit that's got bombs strapped to his arms around his neck and then on his balls so there's a bomb for each testicle. Um, I will say some of that stuff goes in directions I didn't expect. And it's really <laughs> incredible. Um, but I won't necessarily say exactly what it was because it really took me by surprise. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. I wish maybe like somebody, I mean, it's clearly the work of like someone, someone's particular vision but I wish like maybe someone stepped in as an editor to like connect it all together because I think as it as is it's a very fun oddity, but uh, it's not like I feel like it could have been a lot more. Um, but I still think it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I I wouldn't argue with that. I I think that's that's completely fair. I did enjoy the movie, but it's not. You're right. It doesn't fully come together. Although I will say the the utter juvenile in me uh, would, would everyone yes. agree with me on this? Like there, there is maybe the greatest groin kick in yeah. all of cinema in this movie. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I I haven't seen it yet. I still got to see it. Oh, yeah, you I'm, do. I'm behind. I'm behind I think you like it. One. I think, I think Nick, Nick Cage is very good in it. I'm, I'm a huge cage a guy, so I, I'm, I'm psyched to check it out finally. Yeah, it's it's on my list. I just, you know, I'm so backed up on movies, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I just, I just got my giant box of Vinegar Syndrome movies, and I'm like, how the hell am I going to get to, like, 
10 of these things. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm already like so far behind. I have like my last month's vinegar syndrome movies to watch still. So yeah, I saw that picture that you posted on Twitter, Paul. And the first thing that I thought of was like, I, it, does your wife beat you? Like when stuff she, like that comes in. She is like, she's not super excited about how much yeah. money I spend on schlock. Let me tell you. She, she's always like, really? More? I'm like, yeah. Can't you watch what you More. already have? Yeah, that's kind of her point. I think if she really, truly understood how many movies I owned but haven't watched, I think we'd have a bigger problem. Because I, I don't think it's ever really occurred to her, like, how many movies on my shelf are just unopened. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen. The room where you keep all of your DVDs, you got to ask, or I have to oh, yeah. ask you rather, like, the, the, the room that you keep your DVDs and Blu-rays and whatnot, do you keep it locked? It's do, not do, locked. No, Did you keep it... her out just to keep her from coming in? Perusing <laughs> she doesn't really go in there. <laughs> how much cellophane is still on those damn movies? Nah, she doesn't care about movies. She, she doesn't. She wouldn't pay attention to it. She would, you know, she goes in to get the movie she wants. But like around the holidays, because like she would really only go in there to get like Christmas movies or something. And around the holidays, what I do is I take every Christmas movie I have and I remove them and I put them off to the side so we can have them sort of sorted and organized by that. So we don't have to go like sift through 3000 titles to find, you know, a Christmas Carol or something. Um, plus my kids are terrified of the room. They don't like going in there uh, because of all the horror movie posters. So my girls are like afraid of that room. And there's also like, I have little standees of stuff that freak them out and characters and there's like, you know, it's, you know, the, the Pennywise face is hanging on the wall. The Tim Curry Pennywise is staring at them and they're like, yeah, we won't go in there. It's terrifying. <laughs> so generally no one but me goes in that room. <laughs> Love it. Incredible. All right, Allie, how about you? What have you seen recently? Uh, well, apart from marathoning all the seasons of Third Rock from the Sun, uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> nice. I know. It's a great show. Everyone should be watching. So it's good. all on Prime. Well, it is on in Canada. I don't know how it is for you people stateside. Um, I saw a very fantastic movie that's based off of a really cool video game. And it's called Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Oh, I still haven't had a chance to see this yet. <sighs> yeah, we're going to have this out. <laughs> oh, shit. I haven't seen it, so I can't. I can't comment. I really want to. I just haven't been able to go to the theater yet. Oh, I I truly loved it. It felt like a weird, like, Euro cinema movie with how it was shot. And, like, I was, like, a couple of those jump scares, like, genuinely got me. And I didn't hate the cast. I thought it was a lot of fun. And a lot of it was shot near where I live, which is also pretty cool. Because apart from, like, the second in Resident Evil, they're all basically shot around Toronto. That's cool. cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you you mad about that? No. You, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm happy for you. I'm glad that you liked it. Um I had a different experience, but that's just me. Okay, look. I <laughs> really like what Paul Anderson did with those movies. And I I know that for the last 20 years, every time he would make a movie, he would have like a small section of the fandom. Like, uh, uh, get really angry that they weren't carbon copies of the video games. And so now everybody got 
that they got the video game and I listened to you know what made me go and watch the movie late on a Wednesday night when it premiered right before Thanksgiving uh Johannes Roberts the guy who did the strangers pray at night which I really dig he did the 47 meters down movies which I really like yeah I like those uh, movies yeah he did yeah and he seems like a super cool guy he did this um was it real blend maybe I forget what podcast it was but he had a great conversation where he talked about how much of a fan of the games he was and what he wanted to do with him, and I, he, you know, the the sort of like attention to detail that he put into his movie, uh, this Resident Evil film, where, you know, he got the blueprint for the mansion and the police station from Capcom and built them to spec. You know, like um, the zombies, he didn't want to go like super detailed. He wanted them to look a little lo-fi, like they were in the game. He uh, even when they moaned, you know, like the zombie roar or whatever he he tells this great story about toning it back like bringing it back so it sounded a little more like the video games a little silly you know um i love that he said it in 98 i love that it has kind of a synth soundtrack punctuated by some really unexpected needle drops um <laughs> like there's one involving a burning man that was maybe <laughs> completely yeah. not never in a million years they even talked about it on the podcast like you will not believe what needle drop we have on this and i thought i had it nailed no clue. There's no way to predict what song pops up in that moment. Um, and I gotta tell you, I really loved the movie for the first 40 minutes. Like, all of the setup I thought was great. The jump scares are awesome. It looks great. It feels completely different from the Anderson movies. I, I love that it feels like the video game brought the life. And then it just becomes a trudge. Like, I... It just seems aimless and pointless, and I I just didn't give a damn about any of the characters because it felt like the movie didn't give a damn about any of the characters. And then it feels like it starts to have a climax, and then it hits the end credits. Like, just as it starts to have a pulse again, it's like, well, that's it, folks. We'll see it during the sequel. You know, it just, I don't know. It, it bummed me out. I didn't hate it, but golly, I wanted it to be better. Oh, I loved it. It was like, I thought it was very fast moving. Like there was no, like for me, there were no like dropped in bell moments. I was just like plugged in for the whole thing being like, fuck yeah, where are they going next? What are you going to scare me with next? And just, it just felt like I was waiting for them, spoiler, I was waiting for them all to die. And obviously they all don't die because there's a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Because just all this shit just keeps happening. And you're like, oh my God. Also, just hearing Robbie Amell be like, what the fuck is a chat room? I'm like, right, this takes place in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) There were a handful of, like, 90s things that I thought were really charming that were kind of, like, low-key. But then once you get to, like, halfway through the movie, it's just, like, every five minutes, it's like, this is in the 90s. This is in the 90s. You know, it just, like, once you see somebody, like, playing Centipede or whatever the hell it is on their, like, you know, their their oh, yeah, candy like bar cell phone. On their graphing calculator? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something you know, everyone everyone's got a beeper, I think. I don't know. Um no, I I mean, like I said, I didn't hate the movie. I just I wanted more out of it. I, I do think it's weird that Donald Logue, who I usually really like in movies, that dude is in a completely different film from everybody else. Like he's playing um the angry captain who what the fuck was that movie what was uh was it loaded weapon one 
the Emilio Estevez like oh, yeah. uh, Estevez. spoof. I forgot yeah. about Little Weapon. The spoof of yeah, right, like right, an right. early Sam Jackson, but it spoofed all the Lethal Weapon and Diehards and all of that. Like Donal Logue is playing the police captain in that, and um, oh, like Last Action Hero. Like there's practically steam spraying out of his ears. Like he is That's such a shit. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's stuff like that. Just like it's it's no one major thing in the movie that brings it down for me. It's just a collection of a lot of little things that kind of. You know, the movie dies that death by a thousand cuts, you know, so that by the time you get to the end credits, I was just kind of like, oh, what a missed opportunity. But that said, Allie, the fact that you like it so much makes me want to give it another shot. So, and and who am I kidding? Like, the completest in me is going to buy that damn 4K, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah, a thousand percent, I have to complete my original. (laughs) But did you stay for the post-credit sequence and everything that happened almost immediately afterwards? Post-credit sequence. They said, like, three things, and they were like, here's a clip. (laughs) Yeah, I did. You know, it was, um, I don't know, like, I guess I don't know the video games that well because that dude who's involved in that end credit scene, like, I, 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 to me, he, he seems kind of like a knucklehead instead of like the arch villain that he should be. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't. Oh, he's going to transform and it's going to be so good. I guess. I hope so. Is it, is it Wesker? It is Wesker. Okay. I mean, he, his name's Wesker, sure. Um, you know, whether or not... He plays a video game, knows that Wesker becomes a bad guy, so, like, you know. Well, and isn't... There's also... I think Wesker's son is also a bad guy. Or, no, I think he... He's in Resident Evil 6, though, so I don't really know what he does. <laughs> right now, Wesker, as far as we know, doesn't have a kid. Okay. But he seems like the kind of guy who, you know, probably has a kid. I do think it's weird that they made... I don't know loads about the video game, but I know enough to find it very weird that they made Leon Kennedy a complete coward and kind of a joke yeah. in the story. Like, that's just weird to me. But, you know, it's it's whatever. It's whatever. Yeah, that's... That <laughs> yeah, was- I heard he's kind of the butt of the joke a lot. <laughs> yeah, he literally, he's... he's Yeah, he's the brunt... He bears the brunt of every joke. Mm-hmm. In the movie, I think. So, I don't know. Yeah, that was my movie watching. I mean, I watched a bunch of other stuff, but that's, like, the only horror movie thing. And then just, again, tons of Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> I do need to see Third Rock again. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And they, uh, I, Allie, I'm with you. I don't know that America even has that show available anymore. Like, it, it feels like the U.S. is withholding Third Rock and um, Universal Healthcare from us. Like, those are the two big things that... <laughs> it's in the Disney not- vault currently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 70% of our media is now in the Disney vault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they also own all of my, like, home movies, too. Like, they own Oktoberfest now. Like, everything is Disney. That would, you know, you joke about that. But one day that's going to be a thing. Like they're they're gonna own the equipment that we shoot our home media on, and then they're immediately going to own like the IP that comes from anything. And they'll that say, they can... "Well, you can watch what you shot in seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Just pay us thirty dollars <laughs> every time. Every time. Yep. It's funny, but it's also terrifying. <laughs> uh, Paul, how about you? What have you seen recently? Well. I was going to talk all about 8-Bit Christmas, but because yeah. you made some big stink about me not talking about horror no, movies, I did, do now it. you, do you it. don't get to hear my opinions Are you, on okay. the new Are you... 
Are uh, you gonna hold that? Are you gonna keep that? Neil Patrick Christmas? Harris Christmas romp. <laughs> the Matrix Resurrections. Is it okay? Cute? Let's talk about Home Sweet Home Alone because I feel yeah, that it's getting a bad rap. I think that people are shitting all over Home Sweet Home Alone, and it's a it's a good movie. It's it's fine. It's so it's a fun Christmas movie, and I just think that people are way too hard on it. And in a franchise that includes and you know Home Alone two is a fun movie. I love it from my childhood, but it isn't a good movie. Like I, it's not good. It doesn't make any. I mean, it's it's so it's such a cut and paste copy of the first one. I don't know how people can shit on Home Home Sweet Home Alone, but then like lift up Home Alone two. I, I don't think that makes sense. Um, so, justice for Home Sweet Home Alone is my takeaway. Wait, Max, now were you, you defending yeah. Home Sweet Home Alone, or were you bashing Home Alone two there? I wasn't. I like them both. I just think that it's weird that like Home Alone two apologists because Home Alone two like is a fun movie, but it's not a good movie. It is a cut and paste copy of the first film, and it's it's worse in every possible way. But it's but it's insane. Like the the the, the criminals in that movie have a fucking gun. They, they like take this like we're gonna shoot you in the park, you piece of shit. Like what a terrifying, bizarre thing to put in this like sweet little like you know kids Christmas movie. And that's what kids movies were then. They had a little bit of an edge. Well, there yeah, was but but it's. I'm just saying that Home Sweet Home Alone is not a bad movie, and everyone's saying it is, and I think it's really good. I actually would go so far as to say it's a really, really good movie. So I just want that out there in the world uh, that that's a good, good. movie. Um, 8 Bit Christmas was fun. Last Duel was really good. The new Ridley Scott movie. I really oh, like Last that. Duel. Oh, I need to uh, see that. That's part of the MCU, oh, right? Uh, it's like part it's of the MCU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you don't know stuff. it is until... Um, yeah, well, it's a prequel because Iron Man shows up in the last act <laughs> and uh, ends up <laughs> saving... Anyway... Uh, so that it was good. It was really good. Uh, I liked it a lot. Ben Affleck kind of stood out to me as somebody that I haven't seen. I don't know. For me, it was the best I'd seen him in a really long time. Uh, Damon kind of stands out a little bit. Like he, he doesn't quite fit mesh with this movie as well as the other performers do, but overall really, really enjoyed it. Ridley Scott still on his game. Uh, horror wise. Uh, let's see. I've been watching a ton of Christmas movies, but did I'll call watch- out, um, what's that? Did you watch One December Night? Not yet. I'm saving that. Okay. We're going to do a family night with that. Um, oh, here, I'll talk about Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Ooh. Phantom yeah, of the Paul, Mall, that's Eric's great. Revenge. Just, just twist uh, I that picked knife, up man. the uh, Arrow set, which is a gorgeous set, by the way, Jinx. You really need to pick it up. It's it's just that really hurts. nice packaging. Yeah, just um, salt on the wound. Just pouring really lemonade gorgeous. right in there. Just buy it. <clears throat> um, it that movie, I, I had never seen it. It is it is sort of like pure uncut 80s slasher in a movie. Like it's just it's everything you th- it's it's very bizarre. It's really over the top. The emotions are all over the place. Um but it's it's oddly charming. It's it's just that perfect 80s slasher that you you kind of want. And like it's right up there uh, in terms of like 80s slasher discoveries. It's right up there with Killer Party for me. Um I really enjoyed it. Um I thought it was great. I there was recently a podcast uh, the Best Movies Never Made podcast did an episode on Phantom of the Mall and had the original writer uh, talk about sort of what his intention was and then how it got bastardized into the movie we got. 
and his movie was more like emotional and serious, you know, and then he's like, oh, this, this the garbage we got. And, I, and frankly, I kind of like the garbage we got. I, I kind of think that that's uh, more in line with uh, what people kind of want out of their 80s slasher. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a super fun movie. Have, have you guys ever seen that one? I grew up nope. with it. And uh, I really wanted that Blu-ray, and it uh, it sold out in a week, Paul. And I told you this, and how you much it hurt. It. And you were just uh, <laughs> stuck that knife in, Paul. But you know what, Paul? It backfired yeah. on you, Uh-oh. because as you were uh, as you were as you were cutting me just a second ago, I looked it up on Amazon, and it's back in print, baby. Guess what? Well, I just ordered. You know what? Did I? <laughs> Did I hurt you or did I help you? Because I feel like me bringing it up caused you yeah. to go look on Amazon. It's it's the intent. The now you have the copies. So, well, you don't know what my intent was. Maybe I knew the Amazon had it up and this was my way of surprising you. I feel like I know. Yeah. Maybe you well, should pay attention to the podcast you're on and stop online shopping. Yeah, seriously. That's <laughs> very professional to our guests. Um, hey, Allie, I so, just hopped on the Instagram. Why haven't you posted yet? <laughs> okay. It's a movie. There's, there's only one more I want to talk about because it's like a big one I hadn't seen yet. But oh, I'll also throw out Black Friday. I watched Black Friday. Oh, um, it looks did fun. You guys, the, K, the Casey Tebow movie. Yeah, it looks cute. With Bruce fun. Campbell. Yeah, Bruce Campbell's in okay. it. Um, and uh, Devin Sawa is in it. Devin it's, Sawa forever. Yeah, seriously. It's it's fun. It's fun. You know, it, it it's you can see the seams. It's a low budget movie. You can kind of tell, but it's got a lot of energy, um, some pretty impressive effects. Uh, you know, I wish it had like more extras for the movie. It's trying to be because uh, it's really supposed to be like a huge crowd kind of movie. Cause it's yeah, Black Friday and it's 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 the Black Friday of old. Uh, anybody that works retail knows that Black Friday has dramatically changed over the last oh, couple yeah. of years. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of what we think of. It's kind of like the opening of Krampus Black Friday, but in a movie with uh, monsters and zombies and things. So it's 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 fun Christmas horror fair if you're looking for something of that of that ilk. Um, but the big one that I saw that I had never seen was I finally caught up with St. Maud. Oh, after all this time. you love it? Yeah, no, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I, the funny thing was, and I was telling Jinx this, and, and Nolan knows this, uh, it was playing at Fantastic Fest the year I was actually there, and I just didn't see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I could have seen it like two years ago. Um, but the thing just hit Blu-ray in the U.S., like, a couple weeks back. So I just can't believe how long it took for it to become available in a physical media format. So um, yeah, I finally got the Blu-ray in the mail. I put it on and yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really, really good. It's, it's, I think it's, it's a weird movie to get the hype that it got because it's such a quiet contemplative film. Um, And I, I think I, I tried to temper my expectations uh, appropriately, and I think I did. I mean, it's it's a character study. It's really, really interesting. Um, I was texting with Jinx around the different ways you can kind of interpret uh, the goings-on in the film, and I like that. I like that there's some ambiguity, but while at the same time giving us uh, a, a bit of a direct answer <laughs> uh, in the end, uh, I think, in some ways, but... The director, I was reading interviews with the director and she, so Rose Glass directed it. And she actually is one of the few directors who like kind of comes out and says what she thinks it is, which I find really interesting. Um, 
but I like, I, and I won't talk about the endings. I think there are still a lot of people who haven't seen it. Um, but I do think that there's some level of interpretation to what's going on, how much of it is, well, whether or not the, the legitimacy of what's happening is a real thing or if it's uh, brought on by her, by the character's own mania. Um, but, you know, w- either way, it's it's really impactful. It's really frightening. It's really eerie um, and just a visually striking movie for how simple it is. Um so yeah, if, if if you're out there and like me have slept on this movie for two years, uh, go get the Blu-ray. It's super cheap. I think I paid like eleven dollars for this thing, um, and it's it's definitely a worthwhile movie to uh, add to your horror collection. Nice. Yeah, I agree. That's good stuff. Um, I will just talk about a couple of things before we dive into the commentary proper. I am, uh, I'm still watching Dexter and, uh, after a handful of really great Sterling episodes, uh, this last episode sort of fell right back into all, uh, it fell back into all of its old sort of bad habits. I think Allie, did you watch it? Yeah. And I'm like, I was looking for it, but then, but now I'm like, Oh, you're just, it it just feels like they're remaking the last seasons with how it's written now. They're getting lazy, and we're only four episodes in. I well, I, so the first part of the season I think is so good that I'm still willing to give it well, like, a, a fair <laughs> shot. And plus, I was trying to think about it today too. Like, really, all of my issues with that last episode are sent, and I can't really talk about it because it would be spoilery. But it's really only one particular subplot that I have a major issue with in that episode. Like the rest of the stuff was fine. Like the rest of the stuff was perfectly it, solid. Does the, does the subplot involve a gay Russian mob mobster? <laughs> no, I like that episode. I like that character. Uh, Ray Stevenson forever, Paul, but, um, uh, and, Oh yeah. I like the character too. If they hadn't introduced him as a brand new plot line in the final <laughs> season of a show that had a 30 other plot lines, I hadn't even begun to try to wrap up yet. I, anyway, it, it sorry, was, go it ahead. Was, it, it was the season next to the last, I think, but, uh, uh no, it was the last. Are you sure? Yeah, the Russian mob stuff, that was all the final season. Was it really? Yes, that's why I hate it so much. <laughs> oh, that's fucking terrible. Um, I know, right? <laughs> not great. God, I'd forgotten all of that. Okay. Uh, right. Oh, don't get me started on this. Anyway, <laughs> no, I th- no, I tell you what it was, is that, uh, okay, I'll go ahead and spoil part of it because it doesn't spoil matter. It. I think they're yeah. probably going to ruin it in the marketing anyway. But there is a return of a legacy character, as it were, from the previous show that pops up. And it's exactly the character that I wanted to see. Like, I was like, if they bring back anybody, I hope it's this one person and they bring that character back in the worst possible way because the contrivances, the terrible writing that leads to this character's inclusion in the story is, I mean, the character involved should play the lottery right (laughs) after their subplot concludes because they honestly probably should have had a better chance at getting struck by lightning than crossing paths with this character. And yet, and then insult to injury, they then have a conversation at length with a character who is involved in, in the main sort of plot, right? And they drop in, in a completely like not organic way at all. They drop this massive clue for them to figure out a major chunk of like uh, uh, a, a plot for themselves in the most ham fisted way. It's literally a matter of, uh, 
Oh yeah, and uh, what was uh, what was that character's name? Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember it. And then they get up and walk away, and then they do that thing like that only ever happens in movies where they stop and then turn back into the camera and are like, "This person's name." That's what I was trying to think of. And then it does like the push in on the person hearing the information, like, what? Oh you my know? God. It's so astonishingly bad. It's honestly like the first three or four episodes of the season are is like among the best writing that that character has ever gotten. And this episode was among the worst. Like that's it was like night and day. Um and so it it just bums me out. Now, here's the thing. I'm willing to still stick with the show and give it another shot because it bought a lot of goodwill right out of the gate. But given that what's revealed in this episode and how that's going to change the plot, like moving forward, that's always going to bum me out. No matter how good that stuff may or may not be, it's going to bum me out knowing that we got to that point with just some sloppy, sloppy writing. Sloppy. And I was looking forward to seeing him again so bad. Yeah. So bad to the point where I'm rewatching Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> but also, oh, I think I know who it is. It's, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Levitt. You knew he was coming back. Yep. It was. It was. It was time. He uh, he comes back as the soccer kid from uh, or the skating the kid from H two O. He they aggressively <laughs> spoiled him returning in all of the marketing. They kept being like, "Guess who's coming back?" And I'm like, "Batista? Like, are we getting someone good back?" <laughs> Yeah, it's um, yeah, back. I'm I'm excited. I want to see where his character goes, but it just they did it. He need. I'm sorry. He just it was undeserving. He needed something better. Well, not only that, did, did he really not? Did he really forget the name of his best friend's son for a minute? Like yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's just ah, uh, it the whole thing was just a bummer. But you know what was great. That had been billed as a disappointment and terrible and just full of nothing but fan service and uh, 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 just a, a, a work of nepotism that wound up being damned good. Frankly, one of the better experiences I've had in the movie theater this year, admittedly, I haven't had that many, but you know what? I'm still going to give it that prop. I absolutely adored and was completely delighted by Ghostbusters Afterlife. Aww. I haven't seen it yet, but it looks cute. I sexiest man alive. Who is so great? And honestly, I do not understand people's issues with this. Actually, I take that back. I think I do know what people's issues are with the movie. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to talk about them at length. Um, but I, I feel like people were rooting against this movie kind of from the off in kind of a sort of hypocritical way, much in the way that people were rooting against the 2016 film when they shouldn't have been, you know, and they should have given it a shot because I think that movie for all of its flaws, I, I think it is fun. Um, I, I, I just, it's exactly what I wanted out of a sequel to, you know, those first two movies coming, what, 30 years after the last one. Um, I, I, it feels like, you know, it's funny. I was making a joke a moment ago, but, you know, uh, hearkening back to like movies from the 80s and 90s that were for kids, but had a little bit of an edge, a little bit of danger to them. You know, this movie has that. Uh, it, it's funny. It's fun. It's, uh, it, it has so much heart. Like, why did you ever think you would maybe tear up at the end of a fucking Ghostbusters movie? You know, um, 
it, it literally hits all of the right notes, hits them perfectly. And uh, for the life of me, I do not understand people turning on this movie. I do not understand the charges of fan service. Like, honestly, I think it's such yeah, with this movie specifically, I think that has become such a hollow term. You know, and Paul, you talked about this a little bit with Halloween Kills in advance of that movie actually coming out. Like, you know, <laughs> whatever the hell fan service is, it isn't merely just bringing characters back from earlier movies. It's a sequel, people. Like, right. just fucking hell. Well, you and, know, and I like like we talked about before fan service. I don't I, think fan service is a bad thing. <laughs> I think franchises should service their fans. I think that's the point. I think I think the the terminology though gets applied when people feel they're making perhaps lazy decisions. Um, but I I also think it's unfairly applied a lot of times. And I think Ghostbusters just as a property because of the it's kind of like Star Wars where there's just a really negative component of that fandom that came out in droves to attack the Paul Feig version of that movie, which uh, I adore, by the way, I'll I'll come out and say, I am a huge, huge fan of the Paul Feig Ghostbusters. I think it's great. And I think it's, Uh, I think it's a travesty. We don't have a franchise of those characters. If anything, that's my biggest problem with this new one. I haven't seen it yet. It's just that it's sad that the studio didn't continue down that other path, maybe concurrently. It Although is. I do think it was a mistake not to make that movie in continuity. That's the thing with the other two Ghostbusters films. So is um, it not but... kind of hypocritical then for people to bash this new movie for not continuing on the story from the 2016 film when the 2016 film did not carry on the well, story I, from? I, you I know think, what I mean? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think most people who feel that way, though, it's more about how the 2016 one just got a bad hand dealt to it and it, it feels like it it feels like the underdog in this scenario sure and i get so that. i think I... it's just more like we're supporting but again i'm not i'm not writing off this new ghostbuster trip. i'm really excited to see it. i will always see anything called ghostbusters because i'm a huge ghostbusters fan and and i'm very much looking forward to it um but yeah no i think it's weird that that people just seem to make a very uh, intense decision regarding these Ghostbusters movies before they've even come out. <laughs> I think a lot of it simply stems from the fact that, you know, I mean, a lot of the assholes who decried like the 2016 movie were pissed off that their franchise was being taken over by women, which is the dumbest fucking thing. Like, if you're going to be angry at that movie, be angry at Chris Hemsworth. Um, but hey, he's great in that movie. Yeah, how nice no, that that no, uh, yeah, he's hilarious. Right? He's so fucking funny in that movie. Okay, okay, okay. Don't team up on me. Easy. <laughs> See everyone. Easy. He he easy. How dare you? His his interview, the scene where they interview him to like work work as their receptionist is like one of the funniest scenes. Yeah, his in, uh, in cinema. He named his dog Mike Hat, which is um, oh, that's great. Just, that's, yeah, comic gold. Um, but no, there is a lot to like about that 2016 movie. But the problem is, is like it seems like with this movie coming out, a lot of the people who felt burned by a lot of that ire back in 2016 are looking at this new movie like, uh, oh, all of the assholes, you know, finally get their way. You know, they get the sequel that they wanted to begin with. And it's like, that's not really the movie's fault. And this is a movie that probably should have been made anyway like i just you know i think it's it, such a i think it should have come out 
two years ago too i think i think they let it sit for too long and that allowed the discourse to fester a year of that is not its fault (laughs) yeah but they should have just i don't know i think a lot of the studio should have just put these movies out during the pandemic on streaming and let us as a a bit of a gift to the the world yeah because i think like i think it would have been received incredibly warmly if if the if during the pandemic when everyone was feeling very low they got this this dose of nostalgia because look we got Bill and Ted three during that and for me honestly that was probably my favorite viewing experience of that year because it was exactly what I needed it was it was the nostalgia hit you know that I that I required to feel better and just completely nailing the legacy se- I to this day think it's probably the best legacy sequel I've ever seen. I am curious um, to see what you think about this new one, but I guess it, just in wrapping up my thoughts on it, I will say one last thing. I do find it absolutely just bizarre. And I am curious what uh, the three of you think about it too. Like the charges that this movie basically exists solely from like nepotism because Jason Reitman directed it. And honestly, like, look, I love ghostbusters. I adore ghostbusters. Right. But the first movie is widely considered to be a classic. The second movie and the 2016 movie, I think, are both unfairly maligned, but they were both considerable disappointments in their own way, right? But Jason Reitman made Juno and Thank You for Smoking and Up in the Air. And, you know, this is a guy and young adult. This is a guy who has a solid track record. I'm like, you know what? Like. Jason Reitman didn't need Ghostbusters. If anything, Ghostbusters needed Jason Reitman. So the fact that people were willing yeah. to take like a hard line, fuck this oh, movie stance yeah. on the grounds of like nepotism is just fucking hilarious to me. That's yeah. Reitman's a great director, uh, you know, and he's, he has earned any, any title he's given for sure on his own merits. Um, so I, I, yeah, no, I'm excited to see it. I, I will watch it the second it becomes available on streaming. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty much done with theaters. I haven't been to the theater since Invisible <laughs> Man. COVID killed theaters for me. Um, so if it once it hits VOD, I will pay the twenty dollars and I'll watch it. Rock on. Okay, gang, let's go ahead and dive into this commentary. We're going to be talking the legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Everyone out there, no matter how you're watching this, whether it be on DVD or Blu-ray or let me tell you something, you're not watching it on streaming, not legally anyway, because this some bitch is just not out there to be found. Uh, so, you know, let's go ahead and cue it up. And I will say we are watching the longer 85 minute cut and not the butchered u.s cut of the film i was gonna say we're gonna watch that amazing u.s cut that starts oh my god can we i'm excited to talk about that fucking you have have any of you guys actually watched that cut oh yeah Uh, no i have not in its entirety uh is this the one that's already on the blu-ray yes so if you are selecting it as just the play option then you're good you actually the only way that you can select the alternate cut is through the bonus features Okay, okay. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and cue it up to the point where we just start to see Michael Carreras and Run Run Shaw present a Hammer Shaw production, which is just, I mean, if that doesn't make you giddy, I don't know what will. All right, everyone, listeners out there and everyone here, let's go ahead and cue it up to that frame, and we're all going to press play together in five, four. No, we're not. Wait, Jinx. Hurry, Alley, three. It's a playful meme. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It's a playful meme. 
He's being yeah. playful. He's right. Now we're good. Okay. To yell anymore. <laughs> but I don't have to. <laughs> All right, everyone in five, four, three, two, one, and play. And here we go. We have honestly one of the most exciting sounding at least uh crossovers ever you have the shaw brothers making a movie with hammer hammer making a movie with the shaw brothers i absolutely adore it and then right here we get transylvania 1804 we understand that the bulk of the movie takes place a century later and here i am continuity nerd wondering how the hell all of this slots into the previous movies that we've seen but the movie that we watch from this point on is so damn good that it doesn't even really matter, does it? Nope. At this point in the Dracula franchise, I think of them kind of like the Evil Dead sequels, <laughs> where each one is a bit of a reimagining of the continuity while yet embodying what the previous installments represented and did. Paul, um, it's funny that you mention that because on the rewatch in advance of this chat, I have never, ever gotten this before. But this time, did any does anybody watch this movie and in the third act get Army of Darkness vibes? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I could see that. Big time. Like honestly, I just wanted one of the skeleton vampires to <laughs> race away screaming, let's get the hell out of here. You know, just <laughs> once. Just one of them. And they damn near do. <laughs> so true. I'm so guys, uh so oh go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say you guys saying all that, I didn't realize. I didn't even think about this as being in continuity because I would assume this was just like a one-off. Does this have ties back to any of the previous Dracula, uh, Hammer Dracula movies? Only yeah. if you Besides make it Peter Cushing. in your head. Like okay. you. Well, yeah, I mean, Cushing, Cushing as Van Helsing is really the thing. Um, and it was, the other difference is that it was intended to have Christopher Lee in it. That was, that was Warner, like oh. Warner invested, well said they were going to pitch in money for it. They were supposed to pay for half of this film. They only ended up paying for 25% of it because Lee flat out turned the movie down. When, when Hammer sold the movie to them, uh, they sold it with Lee attached. Actually, Cushing wasn't even part of that deal. And the the funny thing is that Carreras because this was a, like such a crazy time for hammer and michael carreras had just gotten the company from his father and this crazy sort of shady backdoor deal and he went to warner with like 30 projects like okay i'm going to rekindle our partnership and do some new things and they turned down every single one and so in desperation he was like well what if we do another dracula and they're like okay uh, and so that was sort of what it was. And then they had a, a connection to the Shaw brothers who, you know, through a series of events, I'm sure we'll talk about, ended up pitching in 50% of the cost. And so, yeah, this was very much intended to be in line, like in the continuity of the Christopher Lee Dracula films, like hundred percent. And so much so that they planned the next sequel out after this, again, supposed to have been starring Lee, which was the Cali, uh, devil bride of dracula movie which is paul remind me if i'm uh, tell me if i'm right about this that is since in the last few years been produced as an audio drama i think yeah big finish so if anyone out there wants to check out and see what that sequel might have been like it is available in some form okay i just heard the wail of the damned outside my apartment um (laughs) what yeah no it's uh remember me fondly uh (laughs) 
So okay, I do I, want to say one thing right at the very this, beginning here. I want to say maybe as much as anything else in this movie, this opening prologue sequence to me serves as a perfect fusion of like Hammer and Shaw because like you you have in the exterior, you have a guy climbing a mountain with the big Transylvanian like Castle Dracula in the background, but we're introduced to him with like this snap zoom that anybody should recognize from, like, any number of, like, kung fu flicks of this era. Then you have him, like, descending into a crypt that, yeah, it kind of looks like Castle Dracula, but it also looks like something that wouldn't be outside the realm of, like, you know, the five deadly venoms. Uh, And it's all lit in this kind of, like... Yeah, it's lit in these colors that might not have been too far astray from how Terrence Fisher might have lit his movies, but also there, there's, like, a paleness to the greens... And the oranges pop in such a way that it also seems like a Shaw Brothers movie from back in that day. It feels like a Shaw Brothers movie more than a Hammer movie in a way. And yet we have Count Dracula here floating in the frame. Like, it's all... The movie tells you very deftly in five minutes exactly what it is and exactly what you're in for. And I I think it's so damn smart for it. Yeah. Well, and I think the reason it it reminds of Terrence Fisher is, is more the, like, Roy Asher connection. You know, like, because... It's it's like Roy Asher to the max, <laughs> you know. It's all the all the interesting like colors and things that have no logical place in the space they're in. Like it doesn't make sense that these extreme lighting patterns would be all over this like dungeon, but it but it's beautiful and we're happy to look at it. Um, yep. You know, it kind of evokes like um, the Brides of Dracula. You know, it it, it kind of has that that feeling and that flavor but in a way more extreme way. Uh, And I, I love it. Allie, I got to ask you, you have played Dracula before and you have sat with us through many a Christopher Lee interpretation of Dracula. How do you feel about John Forbes Robertson here? Well, I'm loving the contour and the eyebrows. I think that really helps his character. The lipstick, you know, it all works. Um, I don't hate it. I think he's maybe not the best Dracula, but he's definitely not the worst. I agree. I he's, you know, it's going to be tough following in Christopher Lee's. I mean, that's yeah. the, like you. You're going up against such a heavy hitter that it's like you're going to do your best, but know that you're not going to beat him. <laughs> yeah, and he does. I think he does do like. Honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with his performance. I think he cuts a striking figure. The makeup, the makeup- is a choice. Like. Like, did this look better when it was on, like, a 16-millimeter film and you didn't see it as aggressively as we're seeing it now? <laughs> yeah, just throw some grain and scratches over top of that, and sure, why not, you know? <laughs> His makeup does almost make him look a little like the Joker, like the, the old 60s him. Joker. <laughs> Dracula lives in a society. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Nolan, tell me, what was your experience like with this movie, watching it the first time? Well, so, yeah, I only caught up with it, uh, like, about a month ago, but um, kind of what you were saying before with this intro, I think, kind of applies to the whole movie, where it very kind of seamlessly feels like a really, really perfect fusion of the two. Um, it, it, I like the way it sort of trades off between their plots in some ways, uh, or, like, sort of alternates just to keep everybody, like, involved all the way through and then um yeah i don't know it's just uh it's just kind of amazing that it works as well as it does uh it feels like it somehow shouldn't but um 
I don't know. I like the the like added horror tinges to the Shaw stuff because they don't always go into horror, but they they touch on enough like fantasy and supernatural stuff that like anytime they go a little bit more, I'm a little I'm always excited. So this is like pushing much further into that territory than a lot of the other stuff I've seen. Like I think the only thing that really got that far into supernatural stuff was um, I think it's called the Nine Venoms. And it's like a guy who sells his soul for revenge. The only bummer is that there's that one's a dub. Uh, I could not find a version of it with subtitles, and the dub kind of uh, hurt the movie. So this is a much better version of the like more fantastical supernatural Shaw stuff. Paul, I want to pass this over to you for a second. Nolan, it's interesting that you use the the phrase dub. Now, <laughs> Paul, I think you and I probably know the history behind this. I'm wondering if you want to tackle it here for a second, but just for a moment hear me out when i say that maybe it wasn't michael carreras you know uh uh not having the sort of pull that his father did with getting funding for movies maybe it wasn't don houghton and what was it his wife's father's friend's connection to run run shaw that led to this movie being made maybe it wasn't any of that maybe it was carreras thinking like hey the Shaw Brothers movies are like the dub people. I like dubbing people. <laughs> you know, we're we're like this. I could work True. with these guys. Yeah. Well, as you know, every every movie that Carreras ever made, he he took a he took all the cast photos, put it up on the wall, and just closed his eyes and threw darts. And whichever one got a dart on it, he would just dub that person. Uh, I made that up. Um, but no, so yeah, I mean, and this movie particularly had um, tons of, I mean, the the shoot was by all accounts a nightmare across the board. Um, I mean, God, they they basically shipped off Roy Ward Baker, Peter Cushing, and a, and a, and a couple Hammer people to work with an entirely, you know, Shaw Brothers crew all based in Hong Kong. None of them spoke English. And I I hate to report that Roy Ward Baker was um not the most accepting person of other people's cultures and uh was wildly um uh, unfair and uh prejudice in his treatment of his Hong Kong crew uh, to the point where it created situations where nobody was talking to each other. And Baker would have to basically go through a translator who would would then communicate to the crew, but they weren't they couldn't even like operate in the same space because they there was so much animosity. Um, but some of that came from the the Shaw brothers promising things that that weren't there. Like the sound stages they were shooting in were actually just large tin sheds. They weren't mm. soundproofed. And there was like an airport nearby. So like every 20 minutes there was like airplanes landing and you could just hear it in the, in the sound stages. So they had to dub like every, everything internal, everything that was shot in a sound stage had to be dubbed, um, which was not originally sort of planned in production. So they produced silently in a way that they hadn't done since like the early fifties. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there was a lot of dubbing in this movie. <laughs> Paul, as you were talking, I think I heard both Allie and Nolan wretch at the exact same time. Am I wrong about that? I've seen so much. <laughs> now, was, that, it, was it already dead or are we watching like a cannibal holocaust kind of thing happen there? I mean, eh, it could go either way. It's just like every time I forget that it's there and then I watch it, I'm like, oh, no, don't do it. 
Yeah. It's bad news. I was just trying to move past it, you know. <laughs> Fight through Wait. it. Just don't look at that. Look at me. Look over here. The shot won't hurt, we swear. No, I... Uh, this is just such a... Uh, you know, it, Paul, you and I, I mean, we've we've been doing this podcast for a while. Allie, you've been doing this podcast for a while with us now. I think all three of us... We, we've had Hammer movies that have a great deal of depth to them that we can parse through. And, uh, you know, then there have been episodes where it's just like, you know what? That movie was a lot of fun. This movie, I think, falls, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a mixed bag, I think. W- would you all agree with me on that? Yeah, I, th- I, think it's, I think it falls in the second category for me where, like, part of what I enjoy so much is just like the visuals and the color, like, like you're saying, like c- compared to some of the other horror or the other hammer I've seen, like this feels closer to Shaw brothers in terms of the colors. And it's just like way more bright. Like you were talking about sort of unrealistic, but um, sort of evocative. And so that's, that was like the big draw is just like, it's a pretty traditional story in some ways though. Like the team up is unique and then it's, gorgeous to look at and still very fun but yeah like it's it doesn't have a ton going on under the surface i don't think you know and it feels like maybe there was a setup for it too and uh all of you tell me if you think i'm crazy for this but you know the idea that in the very beginning during the prologue you have this asian character who decides that you know they they are going to seek out help they need help overthrowing uh uh um their people essentially right like uh so what do they do they 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 head off to romania and they 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 beseech this uh you know this this figure and account dracula i would love to know how he came to that conclusion exactly. that he needed his help in the first place but then you know it it, it it almost feels like there's a great setup to potentially talk about like cultural appropriation like do you, do you think dracula is guilty of cultural appropriation in that opening scene is that a bit is that a bit of a stretch or is that something that he's kind of sort of doing in this movie? But then, you know, the movie doesn't really do anything with that. Like, it's literally just a setup. It's literally just yeah. shoe leather for the plot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that all that stuff, like, is there. But I think all of it was done out of, like, convenience of storytelling rather yeah. than any sort of intent to draw grander meaning it was like well he can't look like christopher lee and we want a guy to kind of look like christopher lee so you can feel like it's in continuity with those but we don't want you to stare at him for the whole movie because it'll get really painfully obvious so we're gonna have him turn into somebody else you know like that's and that's mainly what it is but you know what i what i appreciate about it though is that it's coming this late in the game right uh, for hammer in general and then just for hammer's vampire set not just the christopher lee movies but all the many vampire films i mean we just had the karnstein trilogy right before this yeah um and this movie is nothing like any other hammer vampire film that's ever come before it not just the location and the look of the movie but like the vampires themselves like looking like weird zombie creatures you know like it's it's a totally different thing and that sort of change brings an energy uh, to it that, I don't know, that just, it breaks the paradigm of of Hammer Vampire. And 
and it 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 carries it into a new place that feels more engaging and interesting and and yet still ties into the gothic roots that that make hammer really special and then to nolan's point it bridges it to this totally new style of storytelling that's like completely taken taken off which is why they wanted to to do something in the sort of kung fu space um so i don't know i i I have a great appreciation for this movie because even though it may not be it may not have any sort of like depth and the story may get fairly convoluted and not always make a ton of sense like it's incredibly refreshing and that weighs more to me than them trying to maybe do something more intelligent with the story yeah i'm kind of with you there because like again that being able to get these production companies to work together international production companies that would not normally do so and who have very different styles getting them to be able to mesh that and then make it sort of successful at all is kind of a feat unto itself which feels like a low bar but (laughs) at the same time like it is a the fact that it fuses these things together so well and works for like, I would assume for both categories of fans, as far as like Hammer fans and Shaw fans is kind of still kind of a miracle. This, I would agree with all of that. I just wanted to say while it's on screen, yes. this scene is so fucking good. And to me, it's, it's so like an EC. Uh, it's amazing. Like the slow motion, the lighting, the look of the, yeah. the not even remotely convincing skeletons that nevertheless looks so badass. It is like, a panel from an EC comic brought to life. This is early sixties, like William Gaines tales from the crypt just set the film. And I, I adore it so much. It's kind of the, uh, the evolution of what we saw in plague of the zombies for him. hundred percent. Oh yeah. Like all it's missing is somebody standing off to the side of that cemetery, looking on what's happening and going, good Lord choke, you know, uh, <laughs> And it's totally, it feels like, you know, maybe Romero, like, you know, we talk about Plague of the Zombies maybe being something of a, uh, an influence on Night of the Living Dead. Equally, I wonder if, you know, Mr. Romero maybe hadn't seen this movie in advance of, uh, you know, making a, a, a creep show. Because, you know, you can't say that the Amicus Tales from the Crypt really had any direct influence on creep show's visual style. They couldn't be any more different. Um, and Creepshow obviously was paying homage to the actual visuals from the comic books, but I, I, there are moments in this movie, not just the cemetery sequence, but later on that feel like, you know, that Stephen King and Romero were maybe liberally lifting from this movie as far as, uh, you know, throwing stuff into their own film with a Creepshow. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but, uh, I, I love the parallels between the two. Well, if nothing else to Paul's point, like, they they found a different visual design for vampires and like it's legitimately unique and legitimately legitimately cool and kind of wish more people did something like this. Yeah, even if I I kind of feel like they don't flesh them out all that well as far as like what makes them different. Um, It's just kind of a visual thing for the most part, but I still like it. Yeah, and it it bucks the trend of the types of criticisms that were being lobbed at Hammer at this time, you know, that that they had just, they were regurgitating, you know, what they did before their golden years and not, not evolving. And this, like this, if this movie isn't an evolution, I don't know what the fuck is like Mm -hmm. this, 
and I and we talked about this at one point on the show, but I just feel like if this movie had come out in like 1982, it would have been like one of the biggest movies ever. Like it just because it, it feels like so ahead of the game in terms of genre mashups and, you know, taking things to a new place while at the same time hearkening back to a different time. Um, and, and, and it didn't get a chance to really be seen. I mean, you know, this is a 1974 film that didn't see the light of the light of day until in the U S until like 1979. And, and when it did, it was a garbage cut. It was a butchered version. I mean, that cut of the movie, you know, we, we talked about this briefly at the start. It's 20 minutes shorter. And then another 20 minutes of that, of that film are repeated segments in slow motion to pad out the runtime. So they would take like the scene in the cemetery where the vampires are rising up and just play that scene like four or five times in the movie. <laughs> like, and then cut out a bunch of other stuff. Like the movie makes zero sense. <laughs> and that was the thing that was released to theaters. Like, and so that's for many years what people thought the movie was. And so it was really the death knell of of Hammer because they took out a sizable loan to make this movie. It was, by all accounts, a Hail Mary pass, and it failed, and that was that, and really signed the 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 death warrant of uh, of the studio. It's crazy, which sucks because it's so, you know, it really should have been something that could have saved them. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned if it only come out in 82. Paul, how about if it had come out in 73 or 74 like it was supposed to? Like, why is it? You know, it's funny. I did a little bit of reading and maybe your research turned up something different. I never quite found the reason for it. But Warner Brothers apparently was initially like super high on this movie. Um, You know, they 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 were keen on it. And then it opened well in Singapore. It uh, apparently did what they considered to be fine numbers in uh, Britain. And then at a certain point, they were just like, nah. And then five years later, it gets churned out. So I, but I have yet to find a reason for why WB turned on this particular movie. Well, I, I, the reason why, and this is, you hear this time and again, in in stories of unmade movies or movies that had troubled productions, it was because the studio changed hands. The, the head of the studio changed and the new person coming in didn't understand this movie, w- didn't get what it was, didn't get why it was produced, didn't like it. So they shelved it and it sat on a shelf until it sold, until they sold it to Rosenberg, uh, who there, there's a lot of different, the, the Max Rosenberg of it all. He's the guy who basically, um, He's the Amicus Studios co-founder, and he's the one who edited it and renamed it The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula, which, what the fuck? What a terrible title. (laughs) Um, And he's the one who took out 20 minutes of an 89-minute movie and then repeated sequences to pad it out. And, I, I mean, a lot of people feel that he purposefully sabotaged the film because he had some sort of grudge or didn't like it or didn't like... Carreras or something along those lines and it's hard not to feel that way when when you look at that because anybody in their right mind had to know that that was a bad decision um but the only thing that that really came out of that was he really hated what they did with the dracula element of it so 
some people think that he just cut it to accentuate the things he liked. Uh, but yeah, that's sort of why we got what we got. Well, that's a damn shame. Uh, you got to wonder if in later years after that, somebody like Harvey Weinstein sees that approach and is like, mm-hmm. all right, why not do something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Bastards. It's, it's interesting. All bastards. Why do they all have to be bastards doing bastardy things? I don't understand. Why can't who who in their right mind, Paul, Allie, Nolan would would see this movie and think, yeah, I could fuck with that. <laughs> Well, the other really crazy thing is the cut that came out in um, uh, in Hong Kong originally was like 110 minutes. Oh, I'd like to see that. Yeah. And that cut is like uh, supposedly doesn't exist anymore. Um, It was it was the Well, some people think because it was the Shaw Brothers personal print. So they had their own cut. It was not a director's cut. The, the the cut we have is the Roy Ward Baker cut. Um, but the uh, apparently the Shaw brothers made a, a different cut, a, which was just a, a longer version um, with more action. You know, it, it, again, more in line with the stuff that they shot because there was a lot of arguments. Like, they did not like Roy Ward Baker. Um, they brought in uh, uh, Chang. Uh, I'm pr- pronouncing it wrong, probably, but was it Chang Che or... Chang, uh, C-H-E-H. No, I think it is, yeah, I oh think yeah, Chang Che, the guy who did um, like, yeah, all most of the Shaw Brothers I've watched this year, like Five Elements Ninjas, and yeah, uh, he he was yeah. brought in uh without consulting Roy Ward Baker, they just brought him in, oh, and so that caused a lot of problems too, uh, and that's one of the reasons he's not credited, but apparently he, along with the Shaw Brothers, made their own edit of this movie, which is significantly longer than the theatrical cut and so they tell yeah, i would love to see joe chappelle roy ward baker like, <laughs> yeah, but you know I, what yeah. paul after after everything you just told us about roy ward baker and the way that he well, treated that crew maybe yeah, he kind of yeah. had it coming i mean again yes i agree and and who knows right we weren't i wasn't there i don't know but it does sound like he did not handle himself incredibly well. I think he was in a bad situation. I, I think he felt undermined as an, as a director. So I'm sure some of his attitude came from, from that place, you know, his gripes with the Shaw brothers might've just been legitimate artistic gripes, but the way he treated the crew to me is not, yeah, that's, not okay. that's not acceptable regardless no, of, no, no. regardless of, of how you feel as, as the director of the film. Um, but having said that, and you know, this, Roy Ward Baker is one of my favorite directors. I think A Night to Remember is one of like the great movies of all time. Uh, so I, I think he's, you know, I think he's very capable and I, and I like his cut. Um, but man, would I love to see an extended version of this movie? I, you know what? If we can dig up all these years later, the black and white three and a half hour long cut of George Romero's Martin, then there's no reason we can't find the longer version of Seven Golden Vampires out there somewhere. Yeah. You say that, but I did just rewatch that Event Horizon uh, Blu-ray, which was great, but also I would have loved to see the restored footage of that, but that's non-existent. Nolan, why you got to bring me down? I mean, that's what I'm here for. You bring me down, Nolan. That is a shame. (laughs) Well, and, and the thing about the event horizon cut is it that does exist um but it's 
on a VHS tape. And uh, they didn't want to release they didn't want to release a, you know, a four by three shitty copy of it. But <laughs> why the but, fuck not? But to if that's me, the only way we that, can that's, see it. That's then. my thing. I, I would rather have that. Well, look at uh the Exorcist three. You know, we, we finally mm-hmm. got the the adjusted cut of that movie which in my opinion is not as good as the theatrical with the exorcism shoehorned in um but you know it's not in high definition but we got it you know at least we have it we have a copy of it um i think that would be worth having for something like event horizon because i agree with you nolan i i was so excited when they announced that blu-ray because i was like oh we're gonna get that cut Mm -hmm. um and then when we got it and it was i mean all love the Screen Factory. You know, they, I spend a lot of money on their stuff, but that Blu-ray is essentially just a fancy version of the Blu-ray we already had. Um, that was a little disappointing. Oh, they've so. never done that before. Cough, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Cough. <laughs> I know. I'm so I'm so bummed about that one though. That's also one from this year where I bought the disc and then it got announced like a month later. But then everyone also said the disc sucks. So I was like, I guess I'll just keep my French copy. Actually, I will say this to their credit. Apparently, even though they didn't make a big enough deal about there being a replacement program, there is a replacement program in place so that you can send, I guess, proof of purchase of their original shitty version with the ridiculous subtitles uh, and get a uh, a version with better subtitles that make sense and shit. So that release was terrible, terrible. How they could call that a collector's edition, I'm not even talking about the subtitles. It's literally just like uh, uh, it's somebody else's transfer, as far as I know. Um, and, and the bonus features are basically just pulled from the old universal DVD and slapped onto its own disc with like the most unimaginative menu you could think of. They shat that movie out on the Blu-ray and that movie deserves better. It's a fucking masterpiece. And what they did was a travesty. Yeah. Let me just climb down from this soapbox, but I was just a little angry. (laughs) I, I love Scream Factory, but they are out of all the boutique labels. They're the most, uh, businessy of them and Mm -hmm. every once in a while we get a a release that a normal studio would probably give us without a ton of care put into it um because it's a title they know will sell so uh you know yeah but is but they remastered halloween 4 on 4k and it looks amazing so i'll i'll forgive them so we'll let it (laughs) i need to ask you all and this might be controversial to go ahead and uh you know give rankings but uh you know let's do it anyway uh, what are we ranking? As far as overall, like quality of movies, the, their choices, their customer service, just all around high marks. Like, you know, some companies, they might be good at one thing better than another thing. And like, you know, they might drop the ball here, but they're great at this. I'm talking about just the most well-rounded, best boutique label. Is it not Vinegar Syndrome? Yeah, hmm. it honestly is. Yeah, I'm not as big a fan of a lot of their stuff, though, is probably is probably the difference, though. Like, they're all fun oddities, but they're not like the movies that I really love. Um, but as far as they also put way more work into lower quality movies than people put into the other movies. So, like, I, I got that New York Ninja disc. And there's so much crap in that. And like, they basically made a movie out of like old elements uh it's incredible yeah yeah 
I just uh, vinegar syndrome. I don't know. I their customer service is uh, uh, unparalleled. I think when it comes to all the yeah, other companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they, I think if you're looking at that, yes, it's very well. Not only that, but they're constantly but. shining a light on movies that I wouldn't otherwise know about. Now, are all of those home runs for me? Absolutely not. But you know what? If they release ten movies and I don't like nine of them, but one of them is Resurrection, I'm still calling that a win. Oh, Resurrection's so good. Ah. Oh. Yeah. And, and like you get, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff that you have to sift through some things with vinegar Mm -hmm. syndrome. I don't know my, my investment in that company. I look at it as an investment in just cult cinema in general. Like I, I like supporting them. I like, um, discovering things. I like having them in my collection, even if it's something I don't love, uh, because it's just kind of odd. And I think it's cool to have these things. I kind of envision my collection as something that like distant relatives someday can kind of dive into and just go, what the fuck am I going to discover in here today? And <laughs> hey, Paul. You know, I just, I envision some like distant relative being inspired by the random shit I somehow have acquired. I'll be a creepy old man with like all these weird movies. That'll be great. I'm excited. Why wait till you're old? Be a creepy young man. I, I, I'm pretty creepy right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> <fair>. <laughs> Don't say yourself. We are experiencing a hammer pub first. This is the first time that this has happened. I think we got Paul and I got really, really drunk during the first five or six episodes. So maybe this happened before, but if so, I don't remember it. Uh, but this is the first time that we have had a guest pop up mid-show, thirty minutes into <laughs> the Legend of Seven Golden Vampires. We are now joined by past guest and honestly honorary co-host Michael Verratti. Oh. Hello, everybody. Hey. Yay. Oh, hello. <laughs> Welcome. So, thank you. There I was, just floating in the ether, and I sensed someone was watching uh, this movie. <laughs> uh, in reality, I happened to see Jinx's post on Instagram, and I was like, I love that movie. And he was like, you should pop in. And, like, I enjoyed the comic book nature of me just exploding into the middle of this episode that I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't say no. So... I love it. We're going to build this uh, episode as like with special guest star. So that's yes. far too much value for me. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, it feels like we've just we feels like we've just merged the way that the Shaw brothers and and Hammer did. Like we've just you know brought yeah. something else big in. <laughs> uh, wow. Michael, by the way, I want to introduce you to uh, this episode's guest, Nolan McBride from the Dead Ringers podcast. Nolan, Michael, Michael, Nolan. Please introduce yourselves. Nolan, it's nice to meet you. Sorry for uh, interrupting your your party. Oh, I mean, I was just telling wonderful story. No, it's it's totally fine. Paul has much better things to say about this. <laughs> we're just now, having we're just having fun yeah, here on the hammer pump yeah. as usual. <laughs> now, Michael, we are about thirty minutes into Seven Golden Vampires. Can you tell me, like? You've been on this podcast before. You're you're a huge Hammer fan like us. Where does Seven Golden Vampires rank for you? Not only in 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 line with all of the previous Dracula movies, but also in the pantheon of Hammer. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Dracula fan, as I have discussed multiple times on the show, and uh, I I particularly love this entry because I think that some of the middle movies in the franchise started to get a little rote. You know, we we get some sort of gothic intrigue. Dracula shows up vanquished by a pastor or a priest or a wayward lady or whatever's going on, you know. And uh, 
this movie at least sought to do something different in much the same way that I, I love 8072. Um, Plus the Shaw brothers, like what a great union of two companies that are known for sort of niche, unique things that you wouldn't necessarily put together. This was like probably the discovery of peanut butter and chocolate going well together. Like no one had thought of it until that day. And then <laughs> then suddenly you were like, I want a bunch of these. Like where's, you know, Frankenstein and the five deadly venoms? Like, let's go. Uh, yes. And so I... I love this movie. Uh, I have uh, a theatrical one sheet of it hanging in my bathroom because, as I've oh, also wow. mentioned uh, on this show, I have a Dracula something in every room of my house. So, um, yeah, I, I love it. It's probably it's probably in my top four of, of the Hammer Dracula movies for sure. Oh, wow. Very cool. Now, can I ask, Nolan was just telling us uh, before we began the commentary that he has sort of gone diving into kung fu movies this this past year. Nolan, where did you start? Can you can you remind us? Uh, so the first thing I watched was Five Elements Ninjas um, as far as like Shaw Brothers. Um, and then I think after that was like Five Deadly Venoms, um, Crippled Avengers, uh, Two Swordsmen, I think is the name of it. It's got like multiple titles titles sword um the master of the flying guillotine one and two oh wow and then i think there's been a couple more but i cannot remember the names but yeah so michael i have to ask then like are are you kind of like a fan of kung fu movies or does does your fandom sort of begin and end with with like seven golden vampires no, I love kung fu movies, and it's not something I get to talk about very often. Uh, I, I think that there's a really, really great uh, tradition of of genre crossover with kung fu movies. But um, I like I love Bride with White Hair. That's is a, a movie I, I particularly enjoy. Uh, I, I enjoy quite a bit of the Chow Yun Fat and uh, Jet Li offerings that we got in the in the mid nineties. No, I dig it. I'm, I'm, I'm in. You know, uh, give me something stylized and outrageous, and I'm there. You know, it's funny. After this movie, I mean, I know it didn't do that well in the States, unfortunately, but I I just wish that it had kick-started, like, a long-running line of, like, horror kung fu crossovers. And we've gotten some, yes. like, throughout the years. Like, yeah. It's funny. We were just talking about the terrible job that Scream Factory did on Brotherhood of the Wolf, but that would surely count, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or maybe even the Blade movies, at least the first two. Yes. What I think is yeah. particularly unfortunate about the failure of this movie is not just the Kung Fu crossover, but Hammer had planned to do a lot more outreach to international studios had this gone well. And they had already been in development of another property called The Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula, which would have been a Bollywood crossover. And um, that has been – it was. Yeah, it was a lost script for a while. And luckily, uh, Mark Gatiss and Michael Sheen uh, like recovered it a couple years ago, and they did it as a radio play for BBC4 Radio, and it is quite lovely. And it, 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 you kind of wonder how Hammer would have pulled it off because it sounds very expensive. It begins on a train like an Agatha Christie novel, and it goes across India, and Dracula is like hypnotized a Maharishi. And it, 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 but you want that movie. Like I, I want to see that film. Yeah. <laughs> And that is, uh, we did mention earlier that there was the, um, oh, the mooted sequel. Was it uh, Kali, Double Bride of Dracula? But that's the same thing, right? I think so. 
there are so many um, lost scripts or like amalgamated scripts. Anthony Hines was a machine. He he wrote so many Dracula scripts that then when one didn't quite work, they would kind of cannibalize it for something else. So if you ever kind of get the opportunity to look through Hammer's archives and see kind of the pieces, there are total projects that they have ad slicks for or scripts for that never happened. And then other ones are sort of there. And you're like, oh, this is familiar because it ended up being the basis for this Frankenstein movie or this Dracula movie. But it, it, its original version may not have been that thing. I would I would love to delve into like all of that. Like that, that would hammer and like unmade sequels would be just... Talk about peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and chocolate, as it were. For me, that would be uh, – <laughs> I, w- I would I would be in heaven, I think, <laughs> sort of diving into those. It's funny. Uh, a friend of mine just recently – and Michael, I told you this in a direct message. And I think I mentioned it to Paul and Allie already too. Um, I finally got my mitts on a copy of the uh, Vampirilla script uh, that Hammer was going to do back in the day. And just thumbing through it and seeing how they put together screenplays back in the day, it's funny. The thing is – 135 pages long but that's only because like every other page is outfitted with like an amazing illustration from the comic books <laughs> so it's probably like an 80 page script or a 70 page script but just uh, lousy with all of these amazing images from like the old harris comic book publication and uh you know i just wish that movie existed so badly well it would have to be better than the uh, jim Wynorski vampirella movie that we did get yeah <sighs> Yeah, I didn't know he made that. Yeah, it's not available. So Jim Wynorski says of all of his movies, it's the one that he is least proud of. So you can kind of (laughs) sort through what that means. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and for that reason, it's not really available on any commercial release. But if you're looking on YouTube, you can find it. Yeah, it's um, who's it? It's Talisa Soto from Mortal Kombat. It's Roger Daltrey, and um, and that's a it's it's a yeah it's it's, uh, it's a movie. Yeah, Angus Grimm is in it briefly. I will say that Roger Daltrey is in a totally different film from everyone else, and <laughs> I I quite I quite love his performance, but it yeah it, it is what it is. Actually, you know what? It is worth checking out. I'm I'm, I'm I. Uh, as a filmmaker myself, I will never besmirch someone else's movie. You, you need to experience it, uh, and as an audience member, make your own uh, decision. It's it's definitely like a curiosity in the same way that you know Corman's Fantastic Four was for sure. So, wasn't Don the Dragon Wilson in it too? Maybe it's been a while. And Talking by a while, like kung fu, like martial arts, like horror mashups, like he was a huge like direct-to-video kind of like b-movie action star back in the early 90s like rivaling the likes of uh you know like seagal or you know not obviously not quite at the level of like the big screen guys at that point like van damme or guys like that but but don the dragon wilson like you know if you tuned in to like cinemax late enough at night uh you, you could catch a lot of movies by him or if you uh, check out new york ninja he's like the voice of the main character because um, if you don't know the story behind that, they they lost all the audio materials for the movie, so they so Vinegar Syndrome basically just recruited a bunch of their regular players to like be voices in on the 
for like for the whole movie basically and don dragon don the dragon wilson is like the main character so no way kind of nuts uh yeah. there's also like i think linnea quigley uh, maybe right and like cynthia rothrock it's actually kind of a wild yeah project. it's oh crazy my god that's, yeah, that's insane. Amazing. Like, I need to buy this ASAP now. Like, I had heard about it before, but I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I just I just got my copy today, so I'm excited. Yeah. Did you buy it in the Black Friday sale, Paul? I did. I did. Okay, so now, where the fuck are my Black Friday releases? Also, <laughs> I can never... <laughs> I can never remember if I'm allowed to swear on the show. So sorry. That's you can't. You you yes, you're away. Fine. You're fine. So when you away. ask a dragon adjacent cult person. <laughs> yeah, I was I was joking about my my Black Friday haul earlier. It's like I'm so behind on movie like my recently acquired because I have a shelf with like all the new movies I bought. And like I have to watch those before I can file them because I'm really anal about that for some reason. And now I got this like giant box of vinegar syndrome movies, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm gonna watch all of these. <laughs> I'm so I'm so behind now, but I'm excited. Yeah, I, I got a lot of titles in this recent sale that I'm really really happy about. Uh, Michael, can I ask, yeah. what did you get during your Black Friday sale, and was Flesh for Frankenstein 100% one of them? Uh, oh, you'll be disappointed. It wasn't yet. Um, I. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I actually was very, very uh, excited to get uh, Trauma because it is a a hole in my Dario Argento collection, and I qu- actually quite like that movie. I, I know it's not every Argento fan's fave, uh, but I have most of the Blu-ray releases of his films up until the more recent fair, and uh, when I saw that that was part of their Black Friday haul, I had to get it. And I also got uh, sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things because I needed it to be my collection. Um, <laughs> and those were my only two Vinegar Fri- uh, Black Friday pickups because um, I kind of went crazy on some of the other sites. Like I kind of parsed it out to everybody, which my wallet loses, but my shelf wins, I guess. <laughs> Love it. I um, I need to pick up Trauma. I, I've always really liked that movie. Ever since I first discovered uh, Argento, I think my first one was The Stendhal Syndrome, and then Trauma was right after, and I never quite understood the hate that it got. I've I've always loved that movie, and I'm glad that it finally has a really good release. Piper Laurie's out of control in it, and it's worth the price of entry for that alone. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for Trauma. I've actually never seen Trauma, so I'm really excited. It's a it's, uh... Not just a hole in my collection, but a hole in my Argento knowledge. So that'll be fun. I think it's the first movie that Asia is in that he uh, directs. So okay. I will warn you, it's a little weird. Um, okay. <laughs> because she's supposed to be like a teenager and this older man's like interested in. Hello? But then there's the part of you that's like, oh, <laughs> her dad directed this. Yeah, I can see that being a a questionable thing. Yeah, and so if you raise an eyebrow at that, then how do you feel watching the Stendhal Syndrome like four years later when mm-hmm. what happens happens in that? Like, I, I just, I can't understand like what goes on in Dario's mind where he is able to direct his daughter in certain uh, sequences. I, it's not my favorite of his films. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I, I concur. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I uh, Flesh for Frankenstein. I, I, I just, you know, I've had 
Blood for Dracula sitting on my shelf, just staring at me, judging me for not watching it yet. But I just, you know, every time I pass by it, I'm like, just you wait. We're going to do a double feature before the end of the year. As soon as I get my mitts on on Flesh for Frankenstein, it's got to because I can't watch one without the other. I just can't do it. It's just it feels wrong. And I, I would love to know the story as to why one company got the rights to one and one got the rights to the other when they've always been kind of a pair. You know what I mean? But um, I don't know. I'm just glad that we have good versions of them both. Well, I think we do anyway. I Mike, like much like you, I uh, I haven't gotten my shipment yet. I'm still waiting. I'm seeing all these people post their uh, their Twitter pics of like having gotten their Vanguard Syndrome <laughs> haul, and uh, <laughs> I'm just still waiting on mine. Uh, well, I I do get I, I will say I do get the the priority ship because I'm a yearly subscriber. So oh. I, I I do I, I I you know not not to 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 you know flaunt my privilege. Um, I, I I apologize for that. Um, but you know. Paul, it so felt like you were intentionally flaunting your privilege just then. Is yeah. what that felt like. it, it, it costs a pretty penny to have privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> okay, you know what? We're like 40 minutes in on Seven Golden Vampires, and as much as I love the movie, it, I, I got to tell you, for the amount of stuff that I can talk about with it, I, I'm just going to devolve into being like Chris Farley in that SNL skit where I talk about how awesome every other scene and fight and shot is. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, at this point, I want to digress a little bit and ask everybody here, have you all seen Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein? Or uh, And if so, what have you thought about it? Or are you waiting on the new releases to finally check them out? I've not seen either. Yeah, same. And I, I'm not really waiting on anything. I'll watch them when they <laughs> You should see them. They're great. Come on. Yeah, like Alex, you have played Dracula already. Like you you need to see what Udo Kier does with his Dracula. It's astonishing. I Udo Kier crushes it. Like he is so great. I will watch him in anything. Yeah, I mean, this is also one of his truly most stellar performances. I think that him as Dracula was genius casting. Um I, I just love how horny both of those movies are too. Uh, I th- I think that if you're expecting the the chaste adventures of Cushing and Lee, you're, you've got another thing coming in, in in these films. Wait, wait, wait! Is Blood for Dracula the Andy Warhol one? Yep. Yeah. Oh, then fuck! I've definitely seen it. Never mind. Sorry, I take it all back. <laughs> I think. Correct me if I'm wrong about these lines because it has been a while since I've watched them both. Because I was not going to pay $200 each for those out-of-print Criterion releases. But uh, I think I haven't seen them since VHS, in fact. But if I got it right, the two standout lines from each movie. uh, Blood for Dracula. Michael, tell me, is it uh, the blood of this horse is killing me? Uh, yeah, I mean that's the line. The blood of these whores is killing me because he's so in the in the in the narrative of the movie. Just for clarification, because we are not besmirching sex workers on this good podcast today. No, no. What we but what happens in the podcast uh, in the uh, in the film is Udo Kier's version of Dracula can only drink virgin blood, and he's having some problems because at this point in sexually free Europe there are very few left. So. Mm-hmm. And I love that his uh, his arch enemy is Joe D'Alessandro solely by virtue of the fact that he's going around having sex with all of the women on the countryside, therefore leaving Dracula with no virgins to attack. Uh, champagne problems. Yep. 
I, and then I, we have Frankenstein. I, I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Oh no, no. I was just gonna say I, I'm very. I haven't watched them yet, but I bought. I bought the, um, you know, the the version of it. What was it? Synapse? No, not Synapse. Severin. Severin, Severin put out Blood yeah. Projector. I bought that, and I just got my flesh for Frankenstein. I've never seen either, but I plan on double featuring them. And I'm gonna do Flesh for Frankenstein in 3D because I do have a 3D TV. So I'm excited to see the uh, the vision unfold. <laughs> Love it. I and then what is it? Flesh for Frankenstein. There's uh, there's that riff on the uh, oh god the Brando movie. What is it called? Um, uh, da, 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 da. The controversial X-rated. Oh, Last Brando Tango movie. in Paris. Last Tango in Paris. Okay, so there's a riff on a, ma- uh, a big line from that movie, and the line Udo Kier's Frankenstein says at one point is. To truly know life, you need to fuck death in the gallbladder. <laughs> and he says this while, um, you know what, spoilers. And not really, I don't care about spoiling the movie. I just don't want to say what he's doing while he is saying this. But you know, That's it's, fair. A, it's, a, it's a thing. He's doing what he's doing. Yeah. Allie, have you seen that one? If you saw Blood for Dracula, surely you saw the other one. No, I have, I just realized now that I only saw Blood for Dracula because the opening scene where he's putting on the makeup, uh, Chris, my partner, made me watch that scene a bunch and study it. And then basically for the movie that we made together that's coming out like soon, I'm basically reenacting that whole opening scene in the opening scene of this movie. And I completely forgot. <laughs> Is that girl with the straight razor? Yep. Yeah. When are we going to be able to see that? It's available for, I think it's in pre-order now. So I think it should be out soon. I hate definitive answers on that because they keep switching things around on me. So I'm like, soon. I know that we're in pre-order now. So that's that's a step forward. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to seeing it. And... um... No, I, I, I just remember you mentioned on this podcast before. I remember seeing a poster for it and thinking it looks awesome. So I can't wait to check it out. No, I hope people like it. I hope it like. I just I just got Ellie's short film on VHS. Oh, my God. But... Isn't it so good? Did you watch it on VHS? Do any of you have a, like a VCR? I do not. Oh, my I'm, God. I... I'm in the process of attempting to acquire one. <laughs> I've I seen your short film. I just haven't not. watched it on VHS. But I do have it on VHS. Yeah. So. I was so one step closer. Like my condensed TV, all grainy and everything. I was like, "Oh my god, this is a dream come true." Amazing. It's wild, right? That uh, tape collecting is still a thing. I I love it. Uh, um, I love tape collecting. Yeah, uh, when they put Death Sember out on on VHS, which I was you know lucky enough to direct one of the segments for. Uh, I- I was like, holy cow, of course I have to get this, but I don't have a working VCR. Now, here's the deranged thing. I do have a Laserdisc player, and I, it still works. <laughs> but, like, nobody's doing collector's Laserdiscs right now, so. Hey, give it time. I'm sure it's that'll be that. a thing. Like, like, <laughs> there's a place near me. If you're looking for any Laserdiscs, let me know. There's a place near me that has, like, an insane collection. Like, it's a used store, but they have, like, a ludicrous amount of Laserdiscs, and they're all really cheap. I'm going to warn you that's a monkey's paw like offer because (laughs) I've moved a a handful of times in my life and laser discs are heavy. Like when you like, when (laughs) you have one or two, you're like, Oh, it's fine. But then when you have like a little crate of them, 
Yeah. They are pound. Like it is, it's a lot. Like I've had people look at me when they pick up the box, like, what is this? I'm like, it's a body. Cause it's much easier to explain <laughs> than that. I still am using this dead format that no one gives a shit. Do, do you want, do you like actually watch them or do you just sort of collect them? No, I do because there are still some movies that made it to the Laserdisc format that did not go farther. Uh, and, mm. and now I think with some of the, the boutique uh, labels, we're starting to see something like Phantom of the Mall. Eric's Revenge was only on Laserdisc and VHS for a long time and yeah. like stuff like that. And those are movies that I talk about. Those are the movies that I kept on Laserdisc. So yeah. if I want to watch one of those like Killer Tomatoes Strike Back or Sing starring Lorraine Bracco, you don't need to see it. But I, I own it on Laserdisc. <laughs> like that's those are the movies. Sure. That I have. Yeah, gotcha. That's cool. Michael, it's funny, just before you came on, I was, uh, Paul and I were talking about Phantom of the Mall and the fact that I missed the release of the movie before it went out of print. But fortunately, I managed to snag it eventually. So it's it's fine. There was a happy ending after all. I just can't wait to see it again. I love that movie. It's such a great movie. I really love that one. I used to double feature. It Weirdly enough, it hit pay-per-view, which I pirated. Uh, I didn't personally pirate it, but, you know, like my neighbor pirated stuff back in the day. So I would go and watch, uh, you know, like pirated pay-per-view when I was five years old in the late 80s, you know. And uh, weirdly enough, Phantom of the Mall and the, uh, oh, the uh, fucking hell, my work mind work. Uh, I can't remember the director's name. That's terrible. Dwight Little. Damn it. The Dwight Little Phantom of the Opera with Robert England. Yeah, they came out at the exact same time. So I would constantly double feature those two movies back to back over and over and over and <laughs> over again because I was a burgeoning Phantom of the Opera nerd. Also, I have to blame my older cousin who got me into listening to the soundtrack for the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I kind of want to once I get my uh, hands on the uh, the Phantom of the Mall Blu-ray, I really want to do that double feature again. Um, well, I someday. someday. Growing up, I always thought Phantom of the Ball, Eric's Revenge was a sequel. Like, I always assumed there was a first one. Wait, is it not? No, no. it's it's just, oh. they, they yeah, that's was. what's so weird yeah. about that title. <laughs> is it, it just feels like a second film. And I was always like, oh, I, I, what, I want to see the first Phantom of the Ball. And I could never find it. And then later I, you know, once the internet started to exist, I was like, oh, okay. This is just a weird subtitle it has. Yeah, who is this Eric, and why must he have revenge? (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Now, Michael, can I ask, since you have been on our podcast last, uh, you have have really taken off with another podcast of your own. Could you tell listeners out there about it a bit and uh, why we should be listening? Oh, gosh. Uh, Promo uh, moment. Uh, Yes, I do co-host a podcast with my dear old friend Peaches Christ, who uh, a lot of folks know as a drag superstar and cult leader. Uh, Peaches and I have been collaborators and co-writers and co-producers throughout the years. We've written movies together and written stage shows together. And uh, for folks who know, I did used to host a podcast called Dead for Filth, which ran for uh, over 100 episodes, which was an in-depth interview series. And then I was kind of done. I was like, that's it. We're good. Uh, And Peaches called me mid-pandemic and said, hey, would you return to the world of podcasting? Because I want to bring back uh, Midnight Mass, which was uh, long before Netflix took the title, 
was the name of her <laughs> her midnight cult movie series that she did in San Francisco that garnered enough attention that then she was able to tour with it around the country and the world. And what Midnight Mass does is it celebrates cult movies. And if you go and see it live, uh, it would be, you know, I, I always say it's like giving the Rocky Horror treatment to movies that are not Rocky Horror. So if you were to go see John Waters' Female Trouble, there would be a live performance and people dressed up and there would be some sort of stage show before the film and just kind of a, a grand celebration. And, and John Waters himself has participated and Elvira has been involved. And it's it's really just been kind of a thing. And Peaches was like, I feel like Midnight Mass could still exist in an audio space, but I would want to co-host it. And uh we talked about it, and eventually I was like, all right, let's go. And we relaunched the Midnight Mass brand as a podcast uh, in ju- July. July was the first episode, and every week is sort of like an audio documentary where we explore a cult film. Uh, so it's not just horror movies. It's it's anything from the range of cult. So it could be, you know, The Fan of the Paradise or Anti-Mame or The Bad Seed or uh, sometimes we do cult figures like Elvira or J- William Castle, John Carpenter. And what it is, is we try and get people involved in the movies or uh, the figures themselves to come and chat with us. And then there's also a component where we talk to an obsessed fan or an artist who is influenced by that work. So every week, sort of an audio documentary where we not only look at the property, but then we explore how it affected the world and the zeitgeist and how that cult has has spread out. Uh, you know, across the land. So, for example, when we did Phantom of the Paradise, we talked to Phil Nobile Jr., the editor of Fangoria, because he's a huge fan of the Paradise fan. But we also talked to Malcolm Ingram, who made a documentary about the movie, because uh, in Winnipeg, that movie had uh, played for 18 weeks in the 70s, whereas it was a failure everywhere else. And we wanted to know why in this one city in Canada was the Phantom of the Paradise, like the Beatles, and then like failed ev- everywhere else, you know? Uh so that's what you know, that's kind of what we do. Uh, we we just did uh, Night of the Comet with Kelly Maroney and Mark Andreco, who's a comic writer who loves the movie. Uh, we've had Elvira on. We've had Mick Stoll on. We've had Adrian King and Grady Hendrix. It's it's been great, and you should check it out because every week it's a new adventure. You mentioned uh, William Castle. I adored that episode. And I'll note to everybody out there, like, not only is it a great celebration of, like, the 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 man and his work, but I love that you had uh, William Castle's daughter and grandson on. That was such a great talk. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a real, I mean, it was a, a treat for us. Like, we never thought that, you know, she would come and do it, and she did, so. That's awesome. It's, yeah, it's a it's a great podcast. I, I've been listening to it, um since the beginning or since the relaunch, I guess. Uh, so been a huge fan. I even the most recent one was really good. The Ed Wood episode you did. I I really liked that. Oh, yeah. With Mr. Lobo. Yeah, that was that was a good listen. So I've, I've been a big fan. So this is definitely something everyone should check out. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, yeah, every Wednesday at midnight. Well, technically every Tuesday at midnight. But. <laughs> Uh, All right. So if anyone were to turn their eyes to the screen right now, we would see somebody collapsing in on themselves. One of the seven golden vampires has just been offed. And now we're back into the major battle sequence. Uh, Cushing, not given a whole lot to do, but still looking dashing as hell. And weirdly, like, you know, obviously his wife had passed on by this point. He's done a few movies since that. You know, I, I feel like we're still a few years out from, like, Star Wars. And, you know, obviously that loss took its toll on him. But whereas I thought that was kind of, like, apparent in the last couple of movies that he's done that we've talked about, like, 
does he seem and this is such a weird way to frame this but i'm just being honest here does he not seem healthier here than he has in his last couple of movies by this point after his wife's passing and healthier still than he will eventually look in the the ensuing years or am i crazy for thinking that i mean i always think he looks good <laughs> no 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 he's look, he's handsome as hell but he you know he does become I think the further he gets from that tragedy, the more emaciated he becomes. And it's kind of like heartbreaking in a way, you know what I mean? But here it seems like, I don't know. He's, he's, he, his performance in this movie seems vital in a way that perhaps movies of this era, you know, he, he doesn't feel as much that way. If that makes any sense. Well, killed this room. Um, (laughs) Wow. I was I was muted. I was like, why can't I hear anything? Um, or hear my voice? Uh, no, I, I I agree. I I think that you know immediately following his wife's death, there 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 is a he ages very dramatically, um, very quickly, and and the loss takes a toll on him. But I, but I think what's what's nice seeing him in this film, I think playing Van Helsing, um, just kind of electrifies him in a way. Like I I, I think he he's one of those actors. He's like Vincent price where no matter what the project is, no matter what's going on, he shows up 110%. He, he, he treats the, the, the role as if he's performing for the Royal Shakespeare company, right? Like he's, he gives it his all and he brings something to every movie, regardless of the schlockiness of, of the film around him. Um, and I think here just seeing him be Van Helsing again, it's a little bit like a warm blanket as a viewer um, and it grounds some of the, you know, wild swings the movie's taking in sort of that classic hammerness that feels a bit like a warm blanket in and of itself. So that way I think it's, it's easier to accept and get into some of the bizarre turns this movie takes and perhaps convoluted or sometimes nonsensical things that it does. Um, because he's there and he's taking us through it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that was a weird thing for me to note. So I apologize for any, any Peter Cushing enthusiasts out there listening who may take umbrage with that. I'm just, I love them too. They're all going to be mad at you. Yeah. They will be. <laughs> you fucked up. I tend to. I, I really like the supporting cast in this film too, though. You know, yeah. I think, I mm-hmm. think, um, is it David David Chang? Is that how you pronounce it? Am I pronouncing it wrong? Yeah, as um, uh, the grandson, right, of the farmer from the. Uh, mm-hmm. I cannot pronounce his character's name. I'm sorry to say. Or at least I don't want to attempt it. I, yeah, I think I think given that he because he didn't really speak the language, um, so actually uh, Cushing would would work with him when they weren't shooting on, on the script and help him like learn pronunciations and things like that. And he just did that of his own accord. Cause that was the kind of person Cushing was. Um, and I think there's a, there's a warmth to the relationship between him and Cushing that comes through on screen because of that, probably. Um, but he's a very earnest and sort of compelling partner for, for Van Helsing. Uh, and, and I like that a lot. And I like that he has something to offer in the way of obviously like physical prowess and that, that the martial arts sequences kind of need. Um, 
and that drive the narrative. And I think that's a bit unique because often the characters partnered with someone like Van Helsing are a lot more, not necessarily inept, but not as capable as, uh, as this character is. Mm-hmm. Do we find it kind of odd then that he is, and Paul, I agree with everything that you just said. It is strange to me that they don't save him from this is shameless, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you have too many holes in your shirt, you just got to tear it off, all right? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's Hammer. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but do we find it kind of weird, then, that that character, who very much seems like a, uh, you know, like a wonderful companion for Cushing and a hero in his own right, that he might not have been saved for potential follow-ups, you know? Like, I, I, I think that would have been a great team, more so than... I mean, they have a better relationship in this movie, or at least a more interesting one than Van Helsing and his own son, I think. The the only thing I'll say to that is just that one thing I've noticed in a lot of the Shaws that I've watched this year is that everybody dies at the end. <laughs> so in that way, it kind of feels like true to that half of the movie where all of those characters end up dead by the end of the movie and only Peter Cushing is left. But yeah, I kind of agree. It would be nice to see them stick around longer because I do really like their relationship. It almost, and again, this may just be because of other vampire Dracula analogs, but a little reminds me of um, Charlie and uh, Peter Vincent in uh, Fright Night. Oh, just yeah. like enlisting this older sort of veteran to help them out. So, oh, yeah, I definitely see that. And, um, you know, kill Leyland at the end. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, that wouldn't make sense because he has to be the uh your right. family line to get us to 8072 to Lorimer, right, right. Yeah. do you think leyland is Lorimer's father oh you know it's so wild with the advancement of technology and things it doesn't feel like that should be true but it, it probably is <laughs> yeah, that uh, feels weird <laughs> but you're probably right I mean, given Lorimer's age, I mean, you know, it's. I think that math works. But you know what doesn't work? And uh, Michael, you weren't here for the first part of the conversation, so I'll uh, I'll pose this question to you. Like, given that the movie opens in 1804 with that prologue, and then the rest of the action, you know, we leap forward a century later. How, where does this movie fit in with all of the other Dracula films for you? I mean, look, I think that if you really want to think about it, it's all going to fall apart, like all of it. Right. But I think that like the casual like through line that this takes place somewhere, uh, you know, after the events of um, of uh, Scars of Dracula and and then le- that leads up to eighty seventy two makes kind of sense, except when you start looking at the dates. But the reality is there are a lot of questions we could be asking. Like, who did Dracula's makeup, for example? I think that, I mean, this is the first time we've seen Dracula with a full contour and lip, so I don't know, like... (laughs) I brought that up top of the show. I'm like, look at his lips, look at his contour. (laughs) Thank you, Allie. I knew knew that I could count on you for this. (laughs) Yeah, that, that was, it's a very good question. Um, yeah, is he doing face. it? Does he have like a mirror in his coffin maybe? And he's, he's got a little like pen light in there and he's just kind of getting himself prepared for when someone inev- inevitably approaches his coffin because it has a giant ornate D on it. So that way everyone knows it's Dracula. 
Yeah, he's never been good at subtlety. I think that um, <laughs> no, it it really doesn't make sense. I mean, but also like, why is Van Helsing even in Hong Kong? Right? I think that we we know that he's supposed to be a visiting professor, but he's teaching a class on vampirism, which very few people believe in. Like, I don't <laughs> know that in the early 1900s they're going to spend like steamer fare to like bring someone to talk about that. Uh, so. <laughs> I just think this is like one of those that you have to submit to Kung Fu movie logic. Like we're all yeah. here because, and now we're going to throw a cool safari hat onto Peter Cushing and go to town. Yeah. I think that's fair. Although I do wonder why. Do you all think, what is your reading on this movie? Like Ali, Nolan, Paul, Michael, the opening of the film when Dracula refers to his castle as kind of his prison, do you think he was actually imprisoned there? Or do you think he was just bored of being there and felt like he could never escape that life and that place? I don't know if I felt like he was truly imprisoned so much. Well, so much as he was like asleep and needed to be w- woken up. Like maybe he could have woken up himself, but there was an element of like him being reactivated. It felt like. Okay, I think that's fair. I yeah, I think um I think it was more metaphorical. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, looking for some sort of grander uh project or purpose or, you know, sense of gaining control over something bigger. Um because Dracula is always kind of looking for that that next big thing, you know, that, that he next... needed a good bubonic plague to mess around with yeah he, he needs he needs a goal dracula needs something to work towards it's true yeah all right so here we come we're, we're we're getting close to the end of the film and i gotta tell you like uh michael I, I was mentioning this to everyone earlier i'm curious to see what you think but like this final act never occurred to me before this viewing that this final act is so very similar in so many ways to the final act of Army of Darkness that <laughs> that later film had to have been paying homage to some degree to this film, right? I think so. Sam Raimi is certainly a student of cinema. I, You know, he's the only person, I mean, at the time, now everybody apes him, not realizing they're aping, you know, Buster Keaton and the Three Stooges. Uh but that's it. That's it. Like he made a horror movie with friends from college long before, like the breakout, you know, blockbuster Sam Raimi that we know. They spend a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars, go to somewhere, you know, in in the woods, and he's having them do Three Stooges like Pratt Falls. Mm-hmm. I, he watched movies. He loved movies. I would not be surprised if this was a point of reference because for that whole group of filmmakers, Hammer was it. Hammer. Hammer was the horror that they, you know, internalized in the way that we growing up internalized the slashers of the 80s and John Carpenter. And, you know, we forget that, like, the kind of boom that happened with the 80s that led to this air quotes horror community discussion that, you know, exists now. When you look back to the famous Monsters of Filmland era, it was these movies. It was it was. You know, drive-in fare like the stuff that Herschel Gordon Lewis and Ted V. Michaels and those guys were doing and Hammer. Hammer was the major studio of the day. So if you're a horror fan, this is what you're seeing. So it would make total sense. Yeah. No, I totally get that. And it's funny, too. Like, also, this final act seems to me to um, 
You know, obviously we've talked at length about the fact that this movie is very much a fusion of, you know, kung fu movies and horror films like Hammer Horror and Shaw Brothers. And but structurally and admittedly, like it, it, I ran across this notion when I was doing a little bit of research in advance of this talk. And admittedly, I don't think I'd ever considered this before either. But structurally, this movie is a Western Well, I think a lot of kung yeah. fu movies are. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Wait, even even the Five Deadly Venoms? I know I keep referencing that movie, but I adore that movie so much. But oh my god, I think you're right. I think that's probably a western too. Yeah, you could see it as because like you could. I feel like there's a movie where it's like, oh, here's a bunch of unique gunslingers. Which one of them is like the one we trust? I don't know. Or which one's evil, basically. You know, it's just a damn shame that we never got a fusion of an actual Western with kind of like Shaw Brothers movies, the sense of like, you know, 50s and 60s stars. Like, I just think that we were cheated from uh, seeing John Wayne getting karate kicked to death. I I would have been down with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I'm in for that. Yeah. Karate chopped yeah. some bitch a couple of times. Hammer had dabbled in the Western with Captain Kronos, too, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that then that's kind of a one-two punch. And damn it, we should have gotten a Kronos-Dracula crossover or a Kronos Seven Golden Vampires crossover. I mean, it would not... Could you imagine, in this day and time, with uh, fun Easter eggs and surprise guest appearances in anything remotely Marvel-related, you know, where a character can just pop up and, you know, most of the audience will actually know where the hell they came from and why they're there... You know, it's it's just a damn shame. It would not be out of place if right here with Peter Cushing swinging that torch, things are looking a little dire for him. If Kronos hadn't just rode to the rescue, you know, I don't know. I think you'd need someone to break the hammer multiverse first, because remember, Kronos's kind of vampires are not the Dracula vampires. They're they're more Karnstein vampires. So, like, I don't know. Shandu has to show up or something and like, you know, crack open the, the multiverse first. I don't know. <laughs> although, although in, in Kronos, Kronos does sort of suggest that there are like just a lot of different kinds of vampires. You know, like that, that the vampire they're encountering is just one of many, you know, like the, these particular vampires feed on youth, but, you know, they have to consult, uh, you know, the knowledge he has of all the various different sorts of vampires they might be dealing with. So who knows? Maybe there could be uh, uh, these these uh, zombie-esque vampires as well in that world. But but that's one of the things I like about this movie. We talked about it earlier. Is that like you know the the look of these vampires is so different um, from every other vampire we've ever seen from Hammer, including the ones that are in continuity with this movie. So in some ways, it, it does feel a bit of like a reinvention of that continuity. Anyway, can I just ask everyone here when you first saw this movie? When Vanessa Bjorn is or Bjorn is bitten, like not just when she's bitten, but I guess when she is revealed as being like full on vampire when she's grinning, and you know she's she's full on villain there too. Like, did that strike you as genuinely shocking or kind of a foregone conclusion? Since maybe since I'm less familiar with these, it was a little bit more shocking because I kind of thought. Well, again, I didn't expect all of them to die. So since they'd established that these two sort of had a little romantic entanglement, I was like, well, maybe they'll make it out. And then they both die right here. 
<laughs> so not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah uh, I'm sorry, Alec. Go ahead. No, I have to agree. I think like the first time I watched this, I was like, oh, I didn't think she was going to be a vampire. I thought she was going to, you know, make it out alive and be like a triumphant final girl. But then not so much. <laughs> but I'm well, not mad at it. I'm happy. I kind of like psyched when she became a vampire. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I think that for me, it's like she I love these movies, as you know, but I, I think that it's still a product of the time. Right. And the problem with her character, she like had it a little too good, a little too long. She finances their trip. She's like a woman with agency and autonomy. And it's like, well, it's still the 70s. So she's got to go. And you're like, no, that's some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. That, He's that, gotta go. That's kind of why it caught me off guard because she just she felt like a character that didn't. There wasn't like a narrative reason for her to die. Like her her arc didn't dictate that this is the end of her story. Um, so it does feel surprising in that way. But they also weren't doing a whole lot with her. You know, she's she's there as that sort of. She she thrusts the plot forward with what she's able to do, and she has a bit of a romantic entanglement with with uh, you know the, the David Chang character. Um, but you you get a sense that what they really want you to focus on is Cushing's son, and you know his relationship with Mai Quay or Shi Su's character, um, and that which which is funny because they don't have the chemistry. <laughs> that the other no. couple has you know it's like there, there's a much stronger relationship with the other two that that's more interesting narratively and just in terms of watching those two people interact um but you know i guess they just followed what the script said <laughs> well that's how you said that because there there is that earlier scene where they're watching those other two characters and they're like oh it's clear that they're in love but i'm like but you guys are the ones that have chemistry not the yeah they have very little chemistry <laughs> And it is a shame that it is a one-two punch, too, because right after that happens, like, Mayquay, like, is immediately reduced from being, like, this incredible badass to being thrown over a horse. And, uh, well, what does the vampire do next? Does he tie her down to some train tracks? Is that what happens next? Like, that's yeah. that's what it feels like. She totally well, she's becomes... she's such a badass for most of the movie. And then, you and know, now she's oh, a now woman she's in just... jeopardy. Yeah. That's a shame. It's such a shame. I think a strongly worded letter is required here. Uh-huh. <laughs> but at least we get these great, like, extreme light, like this this green filter and strange off-kilter red lighting in the background. Great lighting in this finale. Yeah. Again, oh, just the so colors good. in this movie are so good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Colors and the look of the vampires and the, 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 the living dead, too, like the skeletons I was mentioning earlier, like... EC comics. And I mean, if you look at how the set is lit, like this is pure, like this is full on like creep show to me. You know, it's just, I, oh I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and like Giallo, like it's Giallo lighting. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's like so many, like it's not just one set of Giallo, like there's green and red, and then you pan over to another part of the room, it's pink and blue. And it's like they're just doing all of it all at once. Yeah. yeah. 
all we need is just like the 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 shocking close-ups with like the comic book background and it's like boom okay <laughs> george and steven they were totally lifting from this movie you know no i think obviously god it's just so damn beautiful though mm-hmm. i ju- i love the the lair with the like circle sacrificial tables although i mean that's a lot of work to interior decorate <laughs> a room solely for that purpose um it's a lot of space too it's true but dracula has time and apparently yeah. so did the seven golden vampires yeah that, yeah but he had nothing going on well if you're undead i mean you've got centuries yeah you know they name themselves right like because that feels like very like there's seven of us like we're golden you know <laughs> one of them found the golden mask and was like Wait. yeah <laughs> what if we got seven of these? I, I like see the that idea short of them film. like whispering that, like, like, going, did you guys hear about the seven gold vampires? Like them, like, <laughs> like yeah. dressing up as townsfolk and like spreading yeah. the rumors, <laughs> pushing their own legends. I love that. Yeah. It took hundreds of years, but we did it. <laughs> okay, can I ask you all a crazy question? If so obviously, like Paul, as you noted, you know, the movie was originally sold as, uh, you know, a Christopher Lee joint. And then he uh, he decided not to come back. And uh, surprise, so, surprise. <laughs> so what we're left with is a movie that's still called just, you know, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Right. There's no Dracula in the title. There was no attempt to fool audiences at large yeah. that until, Lee might uh, actually. Until well, the yeah. American recap. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> But for this initial version of the movie, I'm wondering what everybody's thoughts are on this. Like, does this story even need Dracula in it, really? No. No, no not really. It does not need Dracula. What I, is I think it would be him. I think it would be a better movie without Dracula, kind of. I do too. Because the opening really convolutes the whole setup. Like, if you just kept it a very simple, tight local legend uh and brought van helsing in to that like it would be just you know a more logical movie Look, i think let's... if you hack out the prologue and then part of this ending you could literally take the movie that we have right now and just do a little bit of editing remove dracula entirely from it and i think you have a stronger film well, because there's no Reason why you can't just have a Van Helsing story. He himself, as a fictional character, is as interesting. I mean, look, the Bride of Dracula, the Brides of Dracula, is a Van Helsing story. Sans Dracula. I mean, obviously his influence is there, but I think that we, especially as Hammer fans, are just interested in in Cushing's continued vampire slaying. Um, I am curious what Lee's reasoning was. I mean, Lee was always grumpy and i say this with love of of christopher lee but he always would get upset about these movies but this one specifically seems odd because you know at least you got a free trip out of country right um yeah yeah but maybe he didn't want to go to hong kong and have someone be like so press junket let's talk about those fu manchu movies you did uh (laughs) oh my god Tell me I'm wrong. No, I think you're <laughs> my God. That's totally I I kind of wish he'd done it now just for that. Um, but you know what? Honestly, even if uh, you're right, like, why wouldn't he do this? Because he wouldn't have even had to have shot on the film for that long. Right. 
I've taken gigs to travel for less. Like, come on. Yeah. Well, like, I like, think I think yeah. if Lee had done the movie, because the original script w- didn't have him turning into a different person. They they did that when Lee said no, because they didn't want to call attention the whole movie to the fact that it wasn't Lee. Uh, so they they recasted him and then had him turn into somebody else. So that way they could, you know, focus on it really being a different vampire while at the same time embodying like the Dracula mythos, because that was the only way Warner was going to give them any money was if it tied into the Warner or the, the Dracula storyline. And when we said no, they uh, the original issue was they were going to pull out entirely and then they got Cushing because I don't think Cushing was initially asked to be in the movie. And they before like there was a script and everything when it was just careers trying to sell Warner on a new feature from Hammer. Um, so I think it, it went through a weird sort of up and down note, but it, but it is weird because Lee had been threatening to turn down Dracula for years he said he wasn't going to do Dracula when they made the second Dracula or the third Dracula movie, you know, and, and he hadn't appeared in Brides. And then he just kept making these movies every time he'd complain about it. So, yeah, it is it is odd. Um, Maybe it had nothing I, to do with Seven Golden Vampires. Maybe it was well, they, just satanic rites that broke him. I think it was that. I think at this point, you know, James Carreras was was sort of out of the picture I don't know that he had the same relationship with Michael Carreras that he did with James. Um, and it, I just think there were a lot of weird factors going on with it. But yeah, it, it would have, you're right, it would have been a free vacation. <laughs> right. I just feel like, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I just, I, I can very easily imagine the movie that we just watched without Dracula. I cannot at all imagine this movie without Van Helsing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not the same movie without him. Great. Hammershaw production. It's a shame that we never got more. Yeah. All right. So there ends The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, uh, a movie that I think is just a complete blast. I, I, I feel like I already know how everybody feels, but let's go around. Thumbs up. Yes, everyone? Yes. Thumbs up. Yeah. Would recommend <laughs> Yeah, and if, I love if we it. Can ever... Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite Hammer movies. Um, I I think it's it's a shame that the movie did not get the U.S. release that it probably deserved, and it got butchered. And it's a shame that Hammer did not recoup uh, the money they spent and invested into this, and that it when it finally was released in the U.S., it coincided with the year that they closed their doors. Um, and I think it's interesting that it feels like a movie that illuminates a different path for the studio that like, like what could have been, you know, like that might've led to a different future had it been given the, the true release it was deserving of and, and perhaps a different fate for the film and the studio itself. But as it was, you know, it, it was sort of the, the doom was sealed by the, uh, the system that they were, you know, very, very heartily attempting to uh, appeal to and, and navigate. Man. It is it is a shame that we didn't get more movies in this vein from them. Because um, I think, you know, I we've talked about this so many times before, but 1980s Hammer, following on from the massive success of The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, my God, but the dream. 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So final thoughts, everyone, on this movie. Uh, let's go around and go ahead and, uh, I, I guess, cap this talk, talk off. Uh, Nolan, since this was your choice initially, like, final thoughts. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. What do you say? It's a fantastic Shaw-type movie with uh, lots of hammer trimmings around the edges and uh, some beautiful colors and a lot of fun fights. Rock on it. Michael Verratti, how about you? Oh, uh, absolute 70s deliciousness. Seven golden thumbs up. Would watch again. <laughs> for for brilliant contouring of Dra- the contouring of Dracula and the, the hat stylings of Peter Cushing. Come on. Great greatness. <laughs> Love it. Allie, how about you? Oh, this movie is just like it's it's a chef's kiss. Like it's mwah. I love it. If you haven't uh, seen it, go out and see it, audience. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. It's funny that you mentioned that. Like it's do you all feel that this would be a good jumping on point for anyone? Even though it comes at the very end of the series, it's standalone enough, I think, that you know, if you wanted to get kind of like an uninitiated viewer into Hammer, would this not be a pretty great point to start people out, or am I uh, am I nuts? I, th- I mean, as someone who's still only seen like a handful of of Hammer movies, like I think it definitely is, especially because like as much as you guys brought up the fact that this is following on from the other movies and it it has ties to it, like I didn't realize that, so I just thought it was a totally separate story that just happened to involve Dracula because it did. So like, it didn't feel like it was, it didn't feel like I was missing anything. It just felt like, Oh, Dracula's in this thing too. Cool. (laughs) Very cool. And Paul, how about you? Final thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to steal what Michael said, seven golden thumbs up. Uh, (laughs) that's going to be my new (laughs) thing I say when I like a movie. Uh, no, that, that is, yeah, I loved it. I think it's, it's, what I like most about Hammer and what I like most about Kung Fu style movies, like combined into one film, uh, I think it's ahead of its time. I think the genre bending that it was doing uh, sort of, like you said, feels right at home and what would become mainstream genre cinema in the 80s. Um, and I wish that it had led to a new renaissance for Hammer as it is. I think we're lucky to have it, and um, I'm glad that it's available for people to discover it and and kind of fall in love with it. And yes, I think it is a great place uh, for people to jump into Hammer, what it's all about, and what it has to offer. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. It's uh, it's so much fun. I love the fusion of horror and kung fu and western and uh again that ec comics vibe that i just uh, the the best of hammer gives me and uh i i just wish we got more like it i i really do it's a shame that it's kind of in its own way a one-off um but at least we have this and uh you know i i'm so thrilled with it that i don't care that i have to be at work in a few hours you know what while we're here let's go ahead and throw on the u.s cut we can talk through it as well <laughs> is everybody ready we gonna do that the seven brothers meet dracula yeah, which sounds like it sounds like seven brides for seven brothers. And I keep being like, it's seven vampires for seven brothers. I, I it kind of like to me, it almost sounds like uh, does it not sound kind of like a black exploitation title? Does anyone get that from it at all? <laughs> uh, I get where you're going. Yes. We, we... 
Be cool, man. Be cool. No, no. I, I'm, I'm being genuine about that. That totally <laughs> sounds like a cynical like thing that Warner Brothers would have done. Like, well, what the hell do we do with this thing? Well, what's popular right now? Well, let's go ahead and try and fool, you know, audiences into thinking that this is something totally what it's not. But it also makes me wish that, you know what, if we got a Hammer Shaw Brothers like uh, fusion, could you imagine like um, uh, Shaft v. Dracula? Like, give me a Hammer black exploitation movie set in the seventies. Why not? That that would have been incredible. Yeah. Mm. You're basically talking about the first Blade, almost. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God! Blade Could you imagine is close. A seventies Blade movie, like Blade was in the comics, like Tomb yeah. of Dracula back in the day, with the yellow wraparound sunglasses and the, the kind of as Guillermo del Toro once put it in an interview, like totally like the jive talking, like. <laughs> You get a brown leather coat wearing yellow wraparound sunglasses, afro and stakes. Like, I, my God, if we could have gotten a Richard Roundtree Blade movie back in the 70s, that would just be the coolest fucking thing. We would be, <laughs> we would now be wishing that somehow, some way, Spider Man No Way Home would be bringing him in from the multiverse. It could yeah, still happen. It could. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm still holding out hope for Japanese Spider Man to pop in at some point. So. Oh wow! Totally, he can. If, if not there, then totally. Uh, the end of the the Spider Verse sequel, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I, I I'm still waiting for the Hammer Verse to happen one day, someday. And given, you know, it's funny, Paul, Ali, we haven't talked about this yet on this podcast, but there was some pretty big Hammer news recently. Yeah, uh, they recently just uh, struck a partnership with a new company that looks to give them. Uh, an infusion of cash and uh, looks like they're going to be diving not only into their back catalog for the purposes of remastering all of their older films to put out new editions of, but it sounds like they're going to be doing the thing that we've talked about, you know, and kind of wish that they would have done a decade ago, which is uh, they might be resurrecting some of their classic characters for new adventures. And I got to say, I, I can't wait. Yep. Super excited about that. I'm keen on it. Does anybody else have any strong thoughts on that? Like, what what are, what are we hoping for from that? Like, do you all want it to be, like, remakes? Do we want it to be, like, legacy sequels or just, like, direct follow-ups? Or what What do we want the future to, of Hammer to be, given that news? Uh, I mean, I, I think that, look, the, the only issue with Frankenstein and dracula and obviously hammer put a very unique stamp on them and those are the movies that i like to talk about obviously your podcast is constructed around that 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 trajectory but they're both characters in the public domain which which means there's sort of an oversaturation and any yahoo uh can write a dracula or frankenstein movie and i'm saying that as someone who has written has written several dracula movies myself so uh i i think that for it to feel uniquely hammer and to come back strong, they have to hit on something that only they have. So I think a Captain Kronos movie would make sense. I think a, uh, you know, just something, something that like is specifically them because there's a whole generation of horror fans now who do not associate these public domain characters specifically with hammer the way we may. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's smart. I think maybe Quatermass would be a good way to go. Absolutely. Um, but I would, I mean, as a as a huge Kronos fan, man, would that be cool to see them bring back Kronos. I, I would be a huge fan of that. 
I will say as someone who's not super familiar with Kronos, but have having heard enough, I feel like Kronos actually would be great right now because he seems a lot like uh, the Witcher, and the Witcher is big. So I feel like you could make him into a investigation of the week or investigation of the movie type thing. Kronos with the kind of production value from something like the Witcher would be pretty amazing. But here's the thing. What would you do? And Michael Verratti, over to you. You're given $70 million and the keys to the kingdom. What do you do with Kronos? Do you do a remake or do you do a sequel and recast? everyone uh wow um i I mean my inclination would be to make a sequel because i would want to indulge myself which is usually where it it goes wrong um i think (laughs) i think that i think that probably for modern market you you would do you could do like a backdoor sequel It, it would be a remake in a way but like it doesn't negate the events of the original movie because he's a, a kind of a roving Ronin, you know, there's, or, you know, a roving like uh, a desperado to use your, your two, you know, parallels there. It, it would just be him on a different adventure. And we could allude to the fact that the original movie happened. Of course you would have to recast him because that movie was almost what, 50 years ago. Those, none of those people are, are, are spring chickens anymore. Um, so you would pull kind of like a Superman returns with it. Yeah. Which I think is perfect. I think that's the perfect approach. Uh, but is it okay? One last thing. I am. Uh, uh, I'm sorry for prolonging this conversation, but I think it's just so much fun. Uh, Michael, we'll start with you since I posed Kronos with you. But let's go around the table. Everyone, you all get to make your own Hammer movie. You get seventy million dollars and your choice of their back catalog. You can do anything you want with it. Let's go. What is everybody doing? Oh, and you and you want me to start? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, first off, I probably wouldn't do a movie. I would do a series. And what I would do is this movie. Uh, I think that we have precedent for a really good uh, kind of fantasy epic here. And rather than have the seven golden vampires be nameless, uh, you know, kind of autonomous characters, create a whole narrative where, you know, there are seven vampires across the land and, and have this roving group of vampire hunters and do seven series, uh, limited streaming series. I think that that would be great. That's what I want to do. I love that. All right, Nolan, how about you? Um, I, I would actually, I mean, I hate to go with the boring answer, but I would also probably want to do something with the golden vampires as well. And like, the thing I talked about, like, I love the design of them in this, but they don't really flesh them out as far as, like, what makes them unique as vampires. So I would love to do one that actually, like, went more into, not necessarily, like, a backstory, but just, like, more into, like, whatever weirdness they're up to and maybe, like, flesh them out a little bit more. Love it. All right, Allie, how about you? think i'd want to remake vampire circus oh okay like i don't know who i would cast in the lead like my first instinct feels wrong but i was like i feel like javier boredom should be in the lead but i'm like mm, i think he might be too old though i think i need someone a little bit younger but just as menacing i don't know that you can get as menacing as javier boredom and something like pretty during go like i don't i don't yeah. know if anybody anybody can bring that anymore but no, I dig that. I, I think Vampire Circus is such a fun movie. Um, and, and also, uh, 
circus movie and I'm really excited for like the new Nightmare Alley film like I dig horror movies that happen with like a circus and a freak show and like it's traveling wayward souls and will we ever get a third season of Carnival oh god no. <laughs> what's that what's that Paul Paul Nashi movie uh with like it's with it's it's like a monster mashup movie it's got like a Wolfman, a, a Dracula, Assignment Terror, maybe. Yeah, is, yeah, and it's like, and the, it's like aliens, but they're traveling around in like a circus style thing, and that's how they hide on Earth. But it's all the different monsters. That that room that kind of feels like a weird vampire circus remake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> we need more circuses, and you know what? Where Assignment the Terror, the yeah, right. Assignment yeah. sequel. It's been too long. I think that's a Scorpion release, right? Anyway. Uh, yeah, Paul, I think you and I bought it the same night that we were drunkenly debating whether or not yeah. we were going to drop 60 bucks for I, I uh, buy lots haunt. of Paul Nashie movies. It's, it's fine. <laughs> All uh, right, Paul, over to you. Whew, that's a that's a big question, sir. Um, well, I'm not the uh, the creative genius uh, that many, many of you are. Um, I would I would probably do. I think I would do a son of Quatermass movie. That's ah, what I nice. would do. And uh I would I would have every Quatermass thing be in continuity. I would ha- would have had it all happen, um, and maybe handle it a little bit like the world has been sort of impacted by some of those events. But so, but but by and large, uh, he's been you know the name has been somewhat discredited by the government, and whatever. And now we have his 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 legacy picking up. Uh, who who maybe resents his father, you know, do do some stuff like that where there's some resentment there. So there's you can start sort of a new franchise and have him get involved in some sort of new big science fiction-y thing. Um, but I would lace the whole movie with references to other Hammer films to sort of suggest that a connected universe. Yes. So there'd be Frankenstein stuff in there. There'd be Dracula stuff. There'd be Chrono stuff. And I would probably, God, it sounds horrible saying this, but I would probably do what universal uh, like was trying to do with the dark universe stuff, but maybe not as like heavy handed, like much more subtly try to create, like this is its own movie that stands on its own, but all of these other things exist and they're going to factor in. That's that's I think what I would do and try to start like a big franchise that is, uh, you know, you mentioned MCU and for lack of a better word, that's kind of what we all associate with a big connected universe. I would try to sort of begin that, but I would use Quatermass to begin it because I think he's a good unifying character that could logically exist in all of those properties, uh, but not have to drive them, you know. Okay, but you say you're referencing the previous movies. Like, is is uh, are 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 you going to be referencing like Brian Dunleavy, or are you going to be referencing Andrew Keir? Because those are two very different Quaid masses. Um, I think you could. They are, but I think you could. I think you could massage it in such a way. I would probably primarily focus on Quatermass in the Pit, so it would Fair. be Keir. Um. But I wouldn't preclude those other events from happening, but I might reimagine them slightly. I think that's like, fair. Like from a Keir perspective. <laughs> Love it. Uh, oh, but to have had Andrew Keir in those first two questions. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of how I'd approach it. Like, <laughs> like those things all would have happened, but it was Andrew Keir's iteration of 
of quitting this. Love it. Uh, I would do something similar from what you're talking about. And uh, Michael, yours too, like the Superman Returns of it all, like uh, a sequel that vaguely references the previous movies and is in canon with them, but you have to recast everyone. I would, uh, I would, I'm sorry, I'd be very basic. Uh, I would, I would do Frankenstein, but I would, Paul, I would do what you're talking about, which is bring in other elements from other Hammer movies so that we know that Dracula exists, you know, and, yeah, and say, you know, that, well, uh, Jekyll and Hyde from like two faces and, uh, oh, you know, yeah. uh, God, man. Carmilla and, uh, you know, uh, like all this, that's how I would do it. Like, but I'm such a Frankenstein nerd. It would be, uh, he would have to be like the lead for me or not the lead, but like, uh, um, um, it, it would have to feel like a part of that franchise, like an extension, but a standalone who, at the same Who time. would you cast as Frankenstein? Uh, it's oh, okay. So you, Paul, you know this because I let you read the damn script. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, when I wrote it, like in 2008, Christopher Lee was still alive, and I thought it would would have been so cool to have him play uh, Baron Frankenstein just because. Uh, so I wrote him as a much older man. But now, uh, Ian McKellen. Okay. Is that- so anybody, if if I'm, I'm taking suggestions, like who, who do we get close to in age? Like if you were to write an aged, like post Frankenstein and the monster from hell, Baron Frankenstein, who could capture like maybe Bill Nighy? Um, uh, what what about Derek Jacoby? Maybe, yeah, I I love him. Um. I don't know that I can see him like visually like being an extension of like Cushing, you know what I mean? Or like, um, uh, I just like his menace. I do too. Yeah, like, I think his, that's uh, fair. uh, the, his doctor or no, his, not his, uh, doctor, his master, I think is, uh, marvelous in, uh, the tenant, uh, doctor who, but, um, yeah, no, I honestly, I don't, I don't know who would make for a decent, um, uh, Frankenstein at this point. Like, so, I know who would make a great younger Frankenstein. Like if you were to go back to like his curse days, like somebody like Tom Hiddleston, I think would be make for a perfect like Cushing substitute. So, Mm. but yeah, no, uh, I don't know. It's fun to think. I can't wait to see what they do. And uh, honestly, we're, we're going to be catching up to that pretty quickly. They better start cranking stuff out. If they want this damn podcast to continue, I tell you what. (laughs) So, all right. We we still have a surprising amount of movies to do. We we do we do, but we're getting there. We're getting yeah, there. We're getting there. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're almost done with the uh, the old hammer run, and we'll be getting into new hammer pretty soon. Uh, but I tell you what, somehow, some way, we have come to the end of this conversation about the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Uh, it's been a blast, Nolan McBride. Thank you so much for finally coming on. We really appreciate it, Michael Verratti. Thank you very much for being our surprise guest star who uh, who dropped in, and. Before we go, why don't you both tell folks out there uh, where they can find you at online and uh, what we can keep an eye out for from you in the future and your respective podcasts. Nolan, you were on first. You go first. Yes, uh, you can find me at Nolan underscore McBride or the show's Twitter handle, which is at DeadRingersPod. And I am a little behind on editing, but we should have actually the episode Jinx is supposed to be on. should be out this week, Monkey Shines plus Upgrade. Uh, and then after that, we're doing... Oh my god, um, I missed two. I'm so sorry. I missed two episodes now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. It was a very um, fun episode, though. Yes, it was great. Twist the knife, Paul. Twist the knife. It was very fun. 
No, but that's it for me. Nope. Okay, Michael, how about you? Uh, well, you heard me give the big spiel about Midnight Mass in the middle of the episode, so if you don't know what's up on that, just rewind a little bit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Michael Verratti, Midnight Mass at Midnight Mass Pod. And depending what time uh, this episode is released, Peaches and I are actually doing a live show in San Francisco at the Roxy Theater on December 15th. We're showing a cut of The Phantom of the Paradise, which you've never seen before, and that's all I can legally say. There what? will be there will be live performances and a costume contest. And then, uh, you know, with all the other stuff, uh, we're about to wrap up the season of the Boulay Brothers Dragula, which, of course, I direct the intros for and popped on recently. I've got a couple movies coming out. Just, you know, check my Twitter feed, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> you've heard it all here before. As far as episodes of Midnight Mass, we've got uh, Anti-Mame coming out this Wednesday in celebration of the holiday season. And I believe next week is Earth Girls Are Easy with the Miss Julie Brown herself. Ooh. Oh, wow. Fucking right. Very cool. All right. Allie, Paul, how about you all? Allie, go Allie, first. Allie okay. first. <laughs> you got to stop doing it like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so you, you can find me across all social medias at the Allie Chapel. And uh, Girl the Straight Razor is now finally in pre-order. So hopefully that goes out very soon. And if anyone happens to be in the Durham region in January, I am starring as Cheryl in the Evil Dead the Musical. Amazing. Heck yes. Oh, that's everyone awesome. Go out and see it. I'm so mad I can't go. I Like, I don't live there, so I can't go. And I'm yeah. Sad. <laughs> All you I would go if I could. Weak or, excuse, Paul. Or, Paul, you and I can secretly stage a road trip. I'm just throwing that out there. Just I'm call. Not ag- I'm not against that. Call but you have to fly to Florida first. And get them to just, like, film it on their phone for you. Okay. I will I will have someone pirate your show. <laughs> I promise. Um, All right, Paul, can... how about you? Uh, you can find me uh, ramble about the movies I'm watching uh, at twitter.com uh, at the handle Paul is great 2000, which is as is very modest, I know, but, you know, that's where I'm at. Rock on. Well, hey, thank you so much to our guests. Thanks so much to you, too, uh, my co-hosts. And uh, yeah, here I go. I'm going to do the outro thing again while I mess it up. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, just just going to dive right in. And uh, how do I do this again? <clears throat> and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Yeah, that's it. I got nothing else for the end. Like Usually <laughs> we have like a little Easter egg or something, but no, nothing. Yeah. You're good. That's no, fine. No you got it. You got it in legendary. one, too. No, no mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>